Guido, you have a quote on your Facebook. I think it was from an interview that you did. And the quote begins with, make sure you want it. Yes. I'm wondering, can I continue? I'll, I'll let you know more of what you said here if, if you want me to remind you. So it's, um, trust your own talent and the singularity of your own voice. Be careful who you listen to. And if this is what you want, don't get easily discouraged. What does that mean? Make sure you want it. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. So I know a lot of talented people, talented writers, talented artists in general. But talent is only a part of the equation, I feel like. And, and in this medium, you know, it's so competitive and so tough and it's so hard to get people to care. Um, your talent can only get you so far. It's important. Um, you don't, by the way, you don't have to be talented. I feel like persistence, and I'm not saying anything new here, but persistence is so much more important or as important as talent. So creativity, I feel like you can develop it, right? You don't have to be born creative. You can nurture it. But there's a part of you that has, has to hustle. So what, you can't fake it if you don't want it. And this applies to actors, directors, writers. People can tell if you desire it. And if you don't, that's totally fine. And I'm not, I'm not gonna tell people what line of work they should be in, but you can sense when someone really wants to tell a story, when someone wants to, because writing is not necessarily easy. It's whoever tells you writing is easy, I, you know, I suspect that statement. Um, I'm not saying it's the hardest thing, they're hardest jobs for sure, but there's something about writing that's exhausting because it's, you know, it involves an emotional introspection, um, trying to figure out who you are, what do you want to talk about, what resonates with you, what resonates with other people. So it is draining. Um, that's why you know I, I can only write a certain amount of pages a day because I want to write something that's truthful. And writing truthful pages takes a lot of energy, a lot of uh, thought, a lot of asking questions, a lot of doubt. That's why, you know, I didn't mean that quote to be daunting. What I mean is, um, if you really want to do this, then no one can stop you. Just, you know, th they, there can be failure along the way. There, there can be many frustrations. I mean, daily. Every writer will know this, you know. Some days you just write, write great pages. Some days it doesn't work. Some days you write bad, or, or bad pages or you get rejections or you get awful notes. You know, notes that you don't know what to do with. Like, how am I going to apply this note? And it's a job. You can't say no, right? Um, so what I meant is, you know, if the desire is there, if the flame is within you, then you got the most important thing. How should someone, quote unquote, check themselves to know if they really want it? Because I think we all think we want certain things. And then once we go through the process day in and day out, then it becomes clear to us what it actually is. Yeah, I. It's a good question. Um, so I don't. I don't intend to be a guru of any sorts. And sometimes the line is a bit blurry between like self help and you know. But um, it is a very intimate thing. You know, to me at least, writing is a very intimate thing, very personal thing. Even if I'm not writing about my own life, which I rarely do, it is incredibly personal. I care about it. And you know, there are moments of doubt. Of course, there were moments. And there are still moments when I wonder, is this the best way to channel my abilities, my skills, my talent? The truth is, over the years, I keep doing it. And the fact that I keep going back to it means that I actually care. 
that to me is the the best evidence that I I am a writer. This is not a hobby. This is not something that I'm good at. I mean, I'm good at certain things that I don't necessarily spend time on. I don't know. I guess I could have been a good lawyer. I've thought about this many times. I would have certainly made more money. I would have been more stable. My dad would have been delighted. But that's not how it went. You know, there's a creative energy. There's a need to express yourself through stories. Because, I mean, I've, I've been a film critic for 10 years before actually becoming a screenwriter. And, you know, that's, that's a long story, how I became uh, a film critic. I don't think any child, you know, any 8, 10-year-old child says, I want to become a film critic, right? Um, but it happened. And I'm, I'm glad it did. Um, but, you know, being a journalist or um, writing a film analysis, which I did, that's a, that's a whole different approach. It's still writing, but it's not a, I mean, it is creative, but it's, it's, it's not the same way to apply your, your emotion, your brain. It's very different. So at some point I had to question myself, you know, do I want to analyze a film that's already made and out there, someone else's work, or do I want to produce my own work? And that takes courage, and that takes facing your fears and limitations, and you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to write a script. If you were an attorney presenting your own case, so you were, you were employed by Guido Segal, and you were speaking to the jury about why Guido should continue on this path. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I present to you my client and, and he really wants this. He's not sure if it'll ever pan out or I don't know, what would, what would the argument be? How would you convince 12 jurors with their arms crossed that... I guess what I would say is I like a good challenge. And this is the most challenging and exciting thing that I've found. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I could have been a doctor in the sense that I couldn't do the same thing over and, and over and over again. And with writing, it's always new. No script is, or play, I guess, or novel, they're never the same. So with practice, you get better at it, but every new story you face or you, know, you have to break down uh, poses new, a new sets of uh, new, uh, new challenges. And that to me is very exciting. So persistence, we're going back to what you said originally, that talent necessarily, it's not always in the equation, it's persistence. Yeah, I mean, and especially in, in a city like LA, there's so many talented people. And I don't say this, you know, lightly. I mean, I've met so many talented writers that come from all over the country, all over the world. Um, and they're here for a reason. But to make it here, I mean, I'm, again, I don't want to be the one saying what it means to make it. I would say to get a job or to have a several jobs that just, just to be paid to write means a lot. I want to be very realistic. Of course, you need a dream. We all have one or many dreams, but I think my goal is to keep to be paid to write, and that to me is the dream. It's so maybe I've become older and jaded and more realistic, but it's so hard to get paid to write, to, write, to get paid to be an artist, a creative. Um, so you have to constantly negotiate with what the industry wants and the, and the standards and what you want, and. It's not necessarily the same. Of course, when you get to, a, I guess, to a certain point in your career that you're in control, you can decide. But still, I mean, I, I remember I, I met Paul Feig, right? Um, 
who did wrote and directed Bridesmaids, among Ghostbusters, among many other things. And I asked him, uh, Paul, when is the right time to do your passion project? And he said, never, never is the right time. And you just do it if you want, but know that it's risky. When you were in grade school or as a teenager, were you bored in school? No, I actually, you know, I get a, I, I was, I was a nerd. Um, I was very, <laughs> I wasn't a troublemaker. Um, I actually loved, um, loved school. I know that's not a common thing to, to say, but I loved learning. I loved history. I did okay with math and physics and chemistry, you know, all those subjects, but um, literature, um, history, later on philosophy, like I connected to all that. You know, and I, I love, I've always loved reading. I guess when I decided to be a filmmaker, um, you know, and I still dream about directing. I don't know, I don't think I'm a director by nature because um, I love words, I work with words, and that's why since I love films and I love literature, I'm a writer. I mean, I, and it makes so much sense for me to be a screenwriter. Um, but no, I mean, I actually love school and grad school and, and you know, college. Was the passion project ever the right time? Did you find time to make yours or it's still in the works? Well, it's, you know, I, I had a TV, I have a TV show that I've developed, that I, I've written the pilot and it's been in development for three years. And it's period. I mean, and again, I don't make it easy on myself. You know, it's it's an expensive show. It's period. It's about the '60s. Uh, a lot In Chicago. Of, Sorry to interrupt. I well, by the way, this is the thing. I I didn't set out to be a period writer, but um, I guess it's it resonates with me. So I I wrote one show that takes place in the late '60s in Chicago. Um, that, I don't think that's going to happen, by the way, because they, um, they're going to make the movie, I, th I think. It's about the young, the young lords. And of course, you know, I'm, me not being Puerto Rican um, doesn't help. I got very, I met um, some of those historical figures. I interviewed them. Um, it was really interesting, but um, sometimes some things don't pan out and you just let them go. And that's, you know. Uh, this show, no, the show is, is, uh, takes place mostly in Boston in the 60s, so it's psychedelics. Um, and um, you just got to be patient. You know, I've written that script so many times and rewritten it. And, um, you know, it takes time and money and getting people attached. This is about Timothy Leary? Yes, it is. Okay, I, as growing up in San Francisco, knew his name a lot and I was um, around. Interest, yeah, so that's... Um, I, I adapted this uh, author who now became my friend, uh, Robert Greenfield, and Bob wrote about all these figures in the 60s, like, you know, the Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead, Timothy Leary. So I adapted Bob and we became friends and he's like a mentor to me now. Um, so that opened up, that script opened up other doors to writing about, you know, the, the 60s and rock and roll and psychedelics and... Um, and I clearly connect, even though I wasn't born around that time, I connect to that. I felt the same way, even though I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, so yeah, but there was something about being there and just seeing just the, the counterculture movement that was very attractive and... and... Yeah. You know, I, I, what I suspect, or what I feel at least, is that um, we have an idea of, of, those, of those times and a feeling that 
it was a dream of, of, of how society could have been. Um, and then it didn't work out. But for, you know, for a few years, it felt like America at least could become a place where you know, there was a certain amount of freedom and, and people were against uh, the Vietnam War and you know, expansion of consciousness. And, um, and I feel like all of what's happening today is still, you know, is, is the, the, the effect of those, of those days. Like we're still, we're going back to some of the ideas and uh, theories um, back in the day. Um, I, I, you know, I'm seduced by the idea of, of a different society where everyone's welcome and, you know, you have a certain amount of freedom to do what you do as long as you don't hurt other people. I guess that's why I go back to the 60s <laughs> or my idea of the 60s. And is that one of the reasons you say you don't make it easy on yourself in that doing, you know, doing the time, different, you know, in terms of costumes and cars and, and getting the rights to music and things like that would be a lot. Certainly. I mean, period by itself, you can see producers get scared. Um, because we're talking, if it's a TV show, we're talking about at least a $2 million episode in a 10 episode season, at least I'm saying, right? Um, so it's costumes, it's cars. If it's based on real people, it's having the IP, which, which I do, but <clears throat> um, you know, it's more challenging. Um, so I, I get this uh, note or this comment constantly, which is, why don't you write something contemporary based on your own story? And I usually reply to this, you know, there is a lot of me in what you read. The fact that it's not autobiographical doesn't mean it's not incredibly personal. I mean, I have I have been trying. This is the thing. I mean, this it's everyone has their own approach. I don't like to write about myself explicitly. I don't feel like it's necessary. Um, but everyone's free to do whatever they feel. I mean. Sure, I mean, I, I incorporate parts of my life and anecdotes into my writing, but I give it to someone else. And then that's my approach. Without asking anyone for feedback, how do you know you have a good story? Wow, that's an interesting question. I think every, every writer or every creative, we have an intuition. And um, over time, you, you learn how to listen to that intuition. And, and you know, you know if the scene is working or not. Um, if the script is working or not. Um, usually when you, when you finish a draft, um, my immediate reaction usually is I'm very proud of myself, even though I won't say it out loud, but I, you know, I'm satisfied. And after a couple of days, I start seeing the gaps or I start seeing the flaws. You know, it's like my first reaction is, um, okay, at least I managed to um, put this on paper. Um, then you go back to it and always, I'm always a bit scared to go back to it because when you're, when you're actually on a roll, um, it's like a trance and sometimes you don't, you're not necessarily conscious of what's going in there. I mean, you're following your own, um, the, you know, the scribble of the scene and then you try to make it work and come to life, a life. Um, so when you go back to, you have a feeling which scenes are working, which scenes are not, which scenes need to be totally rewritten. Um, of course, then you can ask for feedback. And, and what I'd say about feedback is um, I always try to be extremely careful about who I ask feedback for. So um, it has to be a limited number of people. It has to be people I really um, 
the people who know what I'm trying to achieve and who are not trying to change what I'm what my my goal is, but who, who are trying to help me make it work. Because it's extremely sensitive. Even you know you're not entirely sure. At least I don't know any writer who's a hundred percent sure. Unless if you're working for a TV show and and you have this very detailed outline, well then you're just following instructions, right? But if it's your own script, something you didn't spec, um, you're never entirely sure. So pick three or four people you really trust, who who love you know your your baby because that's what it is, as you as you do, who will read carefully you know and and who are considerate. And who give you honest um, feedback that's not bringing you down. I've made that mistake in the past where I was trying to impress someone and I gave them my first or second or third draft, and the notes I got destroyed me. You know, and it's really hard to recover from that because you're still not sure what you're. I mean, people might say like, "Oh, you know, I wrote a great script." Again, I'm suspicious. You know, it's it's it's. A script is something very flexible. You, you, you might have a very clear plan, but things change along the way. You have to let them change. It has to evolve. You want it to be organic. Um, so I always, you know, I, ha I have my people, and they're always the same people. And, and those who haven't given me good notes or careful notes in the past, I don't send them any, any scripts anymore. Unless, of course, you know, it's producers you're working for, a director you're working for. Or even your reps. I mean, let's let's be honest. Your, I mean, I'd love to have um, reps who totally understand what I'm doing. It's not always the case. You know, maybe your manager or your agent don't. They, you know, they believe in your potential. Maybe they don't connect to your writing. And then, well, you know, it's a matter of when do you choose to to present your material, or if you have the 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 correct representation. If we had a new screenwriter sitting across from you and they said, you know, I gave my script to several people and one person, I really respect their opinion, but they destroyed me with their notes. And you wouldn't think that because we have a great relationship. What would be your advice to them? Why do you think somebody would purposely try to do that? I think everyone has good and bad days and we, we never know what the other person's going through. Um, and I say this after years of dealing with terrible notes that make me feel awful. Okay, so it's not like I've become enlightened, but I had to deal with this. So, um, with you know, when you send out things to contests or people read your submission or even people you know and respect, maybe they're having the worst day of their lives, and they will hate they will hate your script no matter how good it is. Also. Um, People don't people don't like reading scripts. That's I mean I've that's my conclusion. You really gotta insist, and people will love your script reluctantly. That means for some reason no one has ever has time to read scripts. They'll do it two weeks later, a month later. But when you've actually written a really good script that you worked on, people will have no choice but to admit how good it is. And actually, you know I've. I remember doing internships back in the day and reading scripts, and you don't want to like that, those scripts because you're a writer and they're writers, and you don't want other writers to succeed. By the way, you should learn to be okay with other people's success. It takes time, but you know, no one's success impacts yours. I mean, there's no connection. Okay, you're not a failure because they're succeeding. 
And you know, the, the sooner you acknowledge this, the better life you'll have, which is everyone's doing their own thing. No one's taking anything away from you. So, um, you know, I remember the feeling of being an intern or working for uh, doing coverage and, and you read scripts and whenever you find one that actually clicks, it's an amazing thing. Like, oh my God, this script is actually great. There's so many bad scripts out there, you know, and, and that's fine. I mean, it's really hard to write a good script, but um, I would say whenever you get terrible notes, just try to be understanding. Probably the other person's having a personal issue, you know, maybe they're frustrated with their career, maybe things didn't work out. Because there's, there's really no need to destroy anyone's script. That's my, my opinion. If we were going to take the same new screenwriter and they asked, well, how do I know I have a yes person who might be reading my script? So it's a person who doesn't want to hurt my feelings or maybe there's an agenda, they want to keep the friendship for whatever reason. How do you know, how do you decipher someone who's just giving you fluff? You mean professionally, it's something that's leading nowhere? Um... Feedback on a script. So it could be a friend, it could be a manager, somebody that just, they just want to tell you yes, they want to keep you happy, but it's actually not constructive. Um, well, what I would say is what you want from feedback, you don't want, I mean, of course, our egos need, you know, a little attention. So when someone says, I loved your script, it's so good. There's a second where you appreciate it because you need validation, but then there's nothing you can do with that. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't really believe that your script is perfect. And I'm not saying that you should work on it endlessly because there comes a, a time when you have to stop and you have to move on. And you know, there's a fine line um, between rewrites and then just over rewriting it. Um, of course, unless you're getting paid and then you have no choice. Um, what I would say is you, you try people out. First of all, this intuition I mentioned, right? So your intuition says this person is mindful, this, this person might understand what I'm trying to do. You know, they're generous with their time. Because uh, a lot of people are, you know, they can be great individuals, they're not really generous. Because, um, you know, in order to read someone's script, you need to take time to read it and take notes and actually give them something back. If you're just going to read it in a hurry and, and say like, oh my God, you're such a good writer. Great job. <laughs> like, you haven't really done the work. You, know, you haven't really considered, I know my script is not perfect. That's why I gave it to you. So um, if you feel people out, you try it. Usually you know, you know when they gave you notes, you know that um, if it's going to work out or not. It's like, you know, next time I think I'll go with someone else. Because... Um, you actually want um, honest feedback. Like, what did you like? What did you connect with? Um, what's working? What's not working? Did you find anything um, outlandish or outrageous? Some people might even, I mean, hopefully not, but they might even get offended. You're like, why are you offended? Are you offended in a good way? Like, is this, you know, um, is this causing contradictions that make you think or is this actually offensive and you know I should reconsider it in terms of topics right or content um, so I think it's you know trial and error and with time you find your people with with reps um, well that's that's a whole different chapter because reps I mean I've had several over the years 
and it's it's hard. It's almost like a like a you know like a love relationship. You got to find your person. And um, agent, I mean agents, you don't expect much in terms of creative uh, conversation with with an agent, but with a manager you can. Um, not always though. Sometimes your manager's notes might be, you know, this is not new enough. I need something new because they're trying to sell. And it's like, well, you know, I don't really know what to do with that. What does that mean? What do I know what new is? Um, so, you know, that's, it, it's different because they're not your friend. They can be, but I mean, there's mutual interest in that you produce something that sells and they want to sell it. But with colleagues and friends, I feel like, you know, you got to sense it. Like, okay, this person cares. This person is generous. And a lot of people are not, unfortunately. You know, it's a tricky thing, and I, I don't mean to contradict what you're saying, but with generosity, I think that, especially maybe here in L.A., there are a lot of takers. And I know that's not a popular thing to say, but I'm just going to say it. And so I think when people, they have to be guarded with their time. And yeah. that's the only thing I can throw out about that. Um, well, you know, I, I feel like L.A. is a double-edged sword in the sense that um, you got to be here because this is where th opportunity happens. And that is still true, even though last year, when the pandemic was at its worst, I feel like you didn't have to be here. But usually you do, um, with meetings in person at least, or events, you know, events where you can actually meet certain people. And that's tricky too, because, you know, uh, the thing with networking, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm uh, you know, transitioning to a whole different chapter, but the thing with networking is that you don't just go to parties and meet someone and get a job. You got to build a relationship. And the hardest part about LA is actually building meaningful relationships. Um, and it's about the work you produce, but it's also about a personal connection that's real. You know, people, you know, when you actually like someone and they like you back and you can have dinner and you don't have to talk about work at, at dinner, you're just hanging out. But if you, you know, if you have something to offer and they actually like you and you like them, the odds are they're going to call you. So, you know, it's that. It's not what you do, it's who you know. Well, it is about what you do. But um, having a personal connection that's real doesn't hurt. Sure. I think that's where it's a challenge. Yeah. yeah. And it is true. Look, it is, it is true that a lot of people in this town are really desperate. So they are selfish, but also, I mean, it's really, they're trying to make a living, you know. So I'm really trying to be understanding with everyone. Like, I'm... You can, you know, get, you can get upset uh, and judge people and think they're superficial or, you know, or that their ambitions are um, over the top, you know. But it is a very competitive environment um, and people are just trying to get jobs. So, you know, try to find your people. And, and if someone is not um, your crowd, then that's fine. Sure, and it's a very expensive place to live and it's competitive not just jobs, but survival jobs, apartments, everything. So you're constantly in this loop of competition, waiting for something. And so it, it's hard to maybe the generosity. It's not that they don't want to help someone. It's just maybe they're all tapped out. You know? I mean, everyone's here to, quote unquote, make it right. And again, whatever that means. And I say that because everyone's careers have ups and downs. Right. And when you're at your lowest, then maybe the next day, things just pick up incredibly. So 
even for highly successful people, nothing's guaranteed, right? You might, you know, you might be incredibly successful making a lot of money and have a, a deal with uh, Amazon or Netflix or Apple, and then your show is a flop, and then you're vanished, right? So, I mean, it's it's ups and downs. Um, it's really hard to build meaningful relationship in a town where everyone's trying to find their niche and trying to you know find stability. I'd say that the worst thing about um, being a, a writer or a, or a creator is the lack of stability. You know, we all I think we all crave it at some point. That's why I like uh, teaching because it gives me a certain stability and a certain steady income. Right? Um, there's nothing wrong with having a, a plan B for the times when things don't work out. Um, even I mean, even if you have writing jobs. Contract negotiations can take forever, and I'll never understand why because I'm not involved in that part. But they might take months, so you're waiting on a you know on a sure thing, and you're gonna get paid, and and you're gonna have you know just have to sit down and write. But you know reps and lawyers and and there's something going on behind the curtain that you don't get to see, and you just have to be patient. So either find a hobby, or you know. Get on a, a side gig. You know, I I love teaching. Uh, I love the interaction with students. Um, I've you know I've done um, educational content. I every once in a while, I started out by making film related um, content, and then I ended up you know this year I wrote units on ethics um, and community, for example. And I didn't expect that to happen. That was exciting. Um, yeah, but it's an income. It's stimulating. I learn. So, you know, you gotta open up, like, have different um, avenues open. Going back to what you said about writing and it being hard, I, I think you've posted that you like Gore Vidal, the author. And I know he. he He's not worried about uh, offending anyone or, or just saying what he feels. And um, one quote I have here from him is Some writers take to drink, others take to audiences. <laughs> is there any any? I'm I'm a big fan of Gore Vidal. I don't know if many people nowadays uh, are. Um, I've read. I mean, first of all, he's incredibly prolific. I can't believe that man. And by the way, he's uh, he's overlooked in general. He's um, his whole take on American history. I mean, he's written about uh, many you know um, relevant figures and periods of American history and. He's incredibly um, talented and insightful. Uh, I, I especially love his rivalry with William Buckley Jr. There's a documentary called Best of uh, Enemies. And I think Aaron Sorkin at some point was going to make that movie. And I would have loved to see that. Um, I just enjoy Vidal. And um, I, I envy, or I'd say, no, I, I admire more than envy. I admire how disciplined and prolific he was. In terms of um, you know writing or any kind of uh, stimuli involved, I I'm a get you know I drink coffee and write you know, <laughs> uh, and in terms of audiences, I I I try not to think too much about that because you you know you might you might get lost thinking about like who am I writing for. Uh, you just try to be very personal and very honest and hope for the best.
that it, you know, you just hope that someone cares. And one last follow-up quote from Gord Vidal. The four most beautiful words in our common language, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> Who, I mean, look, he was, he was a provocateur, so I mean, I'm, I don't know what he actually means by I told you so, which is probably one of the worst things you can tell anyone. No, one's, no one ever reacted well to that sentence, right? But um, he did like to provoke a lot. Um, he liked confrontation. Uh, actually, you know, I think Vidal and, and, and Buckley invented the, the, the figure of the pundit. I don't think before 1968, when they had those presidential debates, um, journalism, you know, broadcasting uh, news was just, uh, it, it tried to be objective. The idea of having someone express opinions and debate, it wasn't a thing. Um, so I think, you know, I, I admire Vidal as, you know, as, as a novelist, uh, as a screenwriter, uh, as a playwright, as a pundit. It's just one of those figures that I, I find him um, stimulating and uh, I also admire his intellect. What are three things every great story has? Well, I think, I'm going to be a little bit obvious here, but I think a great opening, uh, you need a hook especially nowadays that uh, people are so distracted and there's so much to read and watch. And so a great hook, uh, a great opening that um, offers a question, intrigue. So I'd say that. Of course, if I say a great opening, I have to say a great ending. And usually I'd say when I write, that's, those are the two things I think of first. I need to know where I'm starting off from and I need to know where I need to get to. And the beauty or the challenge is, okay, how do I get from point A to point B? Uh, but I'm gonna say the third element is a, a great character or characters. Uh, I think one of the most difficult things, things to do is to find characters that feel real or possible and not just ideas, but that feel like people. And that's why the temptation is always to steal from someone you know. And what I mean is, think of people in your life and you know and you I, you never I personally I, I don't ever do just one person I don't I'm not trying to portray a single individual I'm taking different elements it's a composite of different people um, with character I would say though there has to be an emotional connection and with this I mean it's very easy to have ideas and then apply them and the risk with ideas is that you're not connected to them. They just sound great, they sound original. But if there's no emotional connection to you, you can sense it. You, you feel it's cold, right? It's, it's too rational. So with character, you, I try to find that emotional connection. Why do I relate to this trait? Why are there certain quality, right? Um, why do I want to keep seeing this? Why do I want to write about this? So I'd say a great beginning, a great ending, and at least one singular memorable character. Can you give me an example of a character, a uh, film or television, that definitely seems real? You could see them once the movie ends, they're still living their life somewhere. And then the opposite one that maybe it was all hype, but really it felt one dimensional. Um, well, I mean, the, this is the, the, the first 
the first character, and I use this in class because the way it's written, it's, it's just, I'd say memorable is the word. So uh, with the Big Lebowski, the way, it, the, way he's the character is introduced in the script, the way it's written and the way we see it on screen, it's just that we know that guy, right? I don't know him, I mean, I don't know him exactly like that, but that, that guy exists and he's so LA, he's so Venice to be specific. You know, and I don't, we don't know how he makes a living and he's funny and he's high all the time. And he's, by the way, so he's at Ralph's at 3 a.m. in a bathrobe with sunglasses and he <laughs> pays for a carton of milk with a check, right? So it's like, who is this guy? I know him. He's just by looking at, at him, I'm laughing. And that's because I recognize that character uh, and he's memorable. So, you know, the Coen brothers are so good at that. Um, but if we take The Graduate, Benjamin in The Graduate, for example, a totally different character, more grounded. I, you know, I recognize that guy as well. You know, I'm sorry I'm just mentioning male characters. I'm sure I can find female ones too. But what I'm saying is those are people I can relate to. And if I can relate to them, it's because they're specific enough. You know, and... You can come from a totally different, that's the beauty of, of, of art. You come from a different culture, a different background, and even different um, gender, and you connect. Because, you know, there's something about the human experience that you see there. Um, I don't know if I can, I remember the quote, but, uh, you know, David Lynch, who I was listening to on a podcast yesterday, said, um, find the thing that by knowing it, you know all there is to be known. And what that basically means is if you capture a little thing that's real, you're capturing truth in general and people connect to that. That sounds very abstract, but what it means is the more specific you are with your characters, the more, you know, with what they like, what they don't like, what they do, how they like their coffee. You know. And I tell students this all the time, ask as many questions as possible. Try to, you know, try to enjoy the process of getting to know your characters as if you were um, knowing someone you just met. And then the opposite. A character or characters that there was a lot of hype around the film or, or the television show, but they fell flat to you. That's a tricky one because, uh, you know, I have to criticize someone's um, work. I, you know... Off the top of my head, I, I don't know. I can Usually, this is the thing, big franchises don't have great characters because it doesn't matter, uh, you know. And I, I don't want to be cheap and, and crit So, you know, I enjoy the Fast and the Furious movies because I, I do, I mean, I, I watch them. They get more bloated and more, you know, insane by, by the movie. So those are not really characters, you know, they're tropes. And it, you know, it's okay because maybe those movies don't need characters. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's a choice. I don't think that's an accident. You know, action movies in general, you don't need characters to be too deep, right? They just need to be resilient and bleed and fight. <laughs> we go back to The Graduate, Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. Was she, was she three-dimensional? Oh, definitely. De well, I mean, there is no movie without her. Right, it's Benjamin and Mrs. Robinson, and and this is what's interesting. When I first watched it, I think in my probably as a teenager, um, I don't think I understood her that well. As you get, you know, as you get older, you you get her predicament more clearly. It's like, oh, I you know, I see where she is in life. 
I see why she feels unfulfilled. I see why she would flirt with this youngster, you know. Um, it's such a complex character and um, I feel like if you can get characters to do anything and you can still understand their motivation and their contradictions and relate to them, then that's, that to me is success. You talked about great openings. Have there been excellent films that had kind of weak openings? Or is that always a through line? Great films, great openings. You can't have one without the other. I'm, think, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I know there are films that take their time to get there. Um, see, the thing is, I, those are the ones I forget. Great openings are memorable. Um, I always say that things you forget are because, not because you have a problem, maybe, or maybe you have a neurological problem, but mostly the things I forget is because they were not memorable. And what's memorable, memorable and what's not, that's another question, but I do know, um, the, you know, I, I do know which openings I, I remember every single time, and that's because they're great. You know, and I could say, for example, the opening of uh, Back to the Future, right? I remember that exactly. Why is it that, you know, that because that's a perfect script in its own genre, right? Same with Indiana Jones. I mean, I don't know, even The Exorcist. The great openings are, and I'm talking movies, I could talk TV as well, you know, Breaking Bad. I mean, all sorts of examples, but great openings are always memorable. Um, the reason I can't think of any negative examples is because I've forgotten bad. I mean, there's really, I mean, I have no need to archive that, you know, to, to save that in my, in my brain archive, because the ones I've been over and over again uh, are the ones uh, that I take as examples. Where does the creation of a great story begin? I feel like um, every, every creative has a different um, source of inspiration or, or motivation. Um, Maybe it's a feeling, maybe it's an image, um, maybe it's a memory, um, maybe all of them combined. Um, I usually, to me, there's usually an image, um, and that image is going to guide me along the way. Um, when I feel lost in the story, I go back to that, and that image usually contains at least one emotion um, that I don't, maybe I don't fully understand it, but I will explore that through the story. So um, to me, it's, yeah, I would say an image or a series of images um, that contain in them the whole story. Um, and it's, it's the most mysterious thing because I, um, I can't fully explain it. You know, suddenly I'll be talking to someone or I'll be reading, right, uh, something or listening to music a song or and some or, or someone will tell me a story and they're like you know the other day I bought this doll and um, I gave it to my daughter and, and suddenly I hear this and there's there are coordinates there that make me resonate and I know that because I keep thinking about it um, so if, if after a couple of days I keep thinking about it and I'm talking about original stories you no know, it's very different if you get a commission like please write this story right if it's an original thing um, if I keep thinking about it, um, and especially if I can tie to that other elements that I'm interested in, um, you start building a world, right? Um, 
And I know, for example, when Hitchcock did South by, uh, North by Northwest, there was no story originally. He had a, a series of uh, scenes he wanted to shoot, and then he brought, brought in Ernest Lehman, who was one of the best writers ever, and then they came up with a story to tie those scenes together. But what he knew at first is uh, he had these images, you know, a, a guy hanging from Mount um, Rushmore, right? So um, a guy shoots someone at the UN building, and that's perfectly okay, you know. Of course, he's Hitchcock. He knew everything, but um, and then you, you tie those scenes together and you have a story. Um, I like, you know, what Howard Howard Suber, uh, who taught at UCLA for 50 years, what he calls bisociation, which is when you bring together two elements that wouldn't necessarily uh, coexist, but when you do something new comes out, right? So, um, and this happens in life all the time. So. Um, for example, I mean, if you're shooting underwater and you introduce, I don't know, there's a fireplace down there, I'm being extreme, it doesn't belong there. But what that triggers is a series of connections, mental connections, right? Where suddenly you have to make that work. Uh, Chekhov did this in, in theater all the time, right? Introducing an element that doesn't belong and that, that can set the story in motion. Um, so going back to your original question, I think it's images that have an emotional backbone and I have to figure out what that means to me. And then the story will very slowly with patience come out. And one thing I'd like to say about that is um, you got to be very careful because you got to be patient with it and also don't let it drag. You know, you got to find a certain balance because sometimes you just want to rush it. You're like, you know, I want to know what the story is and you'll have a lot of good ideas but they're not necessarily clicking. So sometimes I'll do a very quick um, outline and then I go back to it and realize this stays, this has to go, you know, this is not really honest. This is me trying to get out of, uh, you know, of this situation quick enough to move on. Um, it's a very organic process of discovery. You don't always have the luxury of time. I'm saying ideally if you do, you want to find a balance between taking your time and um, not wasting time. Is that normal to become lost with your story? I mean, if you feel enough, you know, of a pull toward it, whether it's about you personally or a character that you really, um, you know, have fondness for, new writers, if, would, would you tell them that? You will feel lost writing your story? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wish someone had told me that you get lost you get lost, I mean, I get lost very often. Um, and you get lost mostly, not, not because you don't know what you want, mostly because um, of expectations, you know. So sometimes you have an intuition and that intuition says something, but you want to make it so much better and so original and so, that you keep pushing and suddenly you have doubts. Um, and you have to try to go back to that original impulse right? Um, and again, the more time you spend with it, the, the, the more chances you'll get of figuring it out. But um, this is the trick. To me, see, to me, the, the most difficult thing is not the writing itself. It's figuring out what you want to write. The heavy lifting to me is coming up with a story and the characters and the beats. Once I have all that, writing is just a joy. So the writing itself is not that 
that complicated. It's knowing what I have to write. Once I have that, the story all mapped out and the characters and I'm confident, because that gives me confidence. And once, I, once I'm confident, I can actually play with it. It's a joy, but it's not easy? No, I mean, it's not easy, but um, it's like playing a sport. Um, only every time you, you go out there, you have to learn the rules again. Once you know the rules, okay, you know what the options you have, right? And, and, and you come up certain place, you come up in the spur of the moment. Certain place you have practiced before. Um, what I'm saying is that it's not that it's easy. It's just when I'm confident, it's because I've done my homework. And when I've, when I've got that in my head, then I can improvise, you know, a little bit. So I know the scene starts here and ends here. Um, can I add a little flair here that without extending myself too much? Yes, I can. Actually, that little flair might have a narrative purpose, right? Um, I'll give you a, a small example, for example. I, would, um, I was writing this scene and then where this character is trying to impress, this woman is trying to impress an older woman who she sees as a mentor, right? And they're at this older woman's uh, house. And the older woman says, uh, let's go upstairs, I wanna show you something, but please, would you mind taking your shoes off? And I thought, what if she has a broken sock, you know, her sock is torn, right? And it's so embarrassing. And at, at first I thought, that's amazing. And then I thought, well, what is, does it fit into the story or am I, but I realized it's such a character trait and it's such, you know, it's, there's a narrative purpose. If you're trying to impress someone, you'd be very embarrassed. So not only did it stay, it made the scene. Or you didn't get a pedicure that week and your, your, yeah, your feet look horrible. Anything that makes you look, you know, other than what you want to be uh -huh. perceived as. Yeah, right. Um, for you, maybe her husband will say like, it's not a big deal, honey. And she'll be like, yes, it is a big deal. It might be. Right? I mean, to some people it would be, yeah. Well, she think of me. I'm like, well, she, she thought you were amazing. Until she saw your foot. Um, so, you know, that's, you gotta. Right. But that only comes out once you know your world and your characters. Sure, sure. And the relationships. Right, I could see that being a real thing. I mean, because you go to people's homes all the time. And, oh, do you mind taking off your shoes? Oh, no, no problem. And then you go, oh. Oh, that's right. And then you're thinking, oh no. Yeah. What I are they going to think? How didn't I think of this in advance? Right. You know, and that makes the character real. What's your writing process? My writing process, um, it starts off with procrastination. And I got to say this because every writer does it. Um, and it's terrible. I don't recommend it. But no, let, let's be honest. Writing starts off with uh, an idea, right? Um, and you get excited about this idea and you have to write it down. Again, I'm talking about writing on spec. Um, it's very different if you're coming in to write something or, you know, if there's a pre-existing. Let's start off with writing on spec and then I'll answer the question separately if, you know, about writing uh, based on someone else's material. So if it's my own script, um, there's an idea. And uh, I'm very excited about it and I need to write it down and I need to capture it as best as I can. Right, so I uh, usually might be on my computer or might be just um, handwritten, right? And I'll take a, a notebook and I'll start writing. Um, and of course, I'm very satisfied with that, but then you realize, okay, this idea is not the story, right? Everyone has a great idea, but then you have to break, down, break it down into characters and beats, and it's so much more complex. And of course, it will change, 
because idea, great ideas don't make great movies. They can help, but great movies need events, right? And conflict and characters and so on. Um, so you start breaking, at some point, you start breaking down a story, you get very frustrated because now it's real, right? Ideas are up there flying in the air, but then you're breaking it down and now it's, got, it's gotten real. So you start breaking it down um, and you explore characters separately. And if some people do backstory, I discover backstory as I go along. Some people start off from theme. I love theme, by the way. It's something I think about. I tend to th uh, think of theme as a question. You know, some people, some people will use words, right? Like um, um, love, uh, full potential, right? I don't know what to do with, with those words in, you know, in terms of practical writing. Like, it's a story about love. Sure, I mean, but what do I do with that? So to me, themes are more, more of a question, more of a specific question. Um, you know, it might be a movie about sports, but then the theme is, um, how does it feel like to not be recognized by your father, right, for example. So, I mean, it's something I can relate to and then I can explore and the story is an answer to that question in a way. So, um, once I have the idea, I start breaking down separately character and backstory. Um, the world, right? Um, if it's period, I have to do research. Um, and I love research. Um, I actually love it so much that I would spend my entire life just doing research. I, I love going to reading books, watching movies, going to library. You know, sometimes great. Uh, the New York Public Library has an amazing archive and you go there in the back with your little gloves and then you just spend hours going through original letters and I, I had a blast doing that. So research, not too much because at some point it can drive you mad. So at some point you gotta stop with research and start um, making things up. And once you have like the world, the characters, the beats, and now you're ready to start writing. Um, if it's, you know, if it's based on someone else's material, then, um, well, I guess instead of coming up with the beats, you're trying to find those beats in the book or the source material and the characters, the beauty of, of adaptations is that characters are a given, you know. Still, it doesn't mean that you're going to take everything in there. You got to learn what to take and what to discard, of course. Um, a friend uh, who's a producer the other day was telling me that um, movies are not novels. Movies are short stories. Um, and, and short films are like poems. So, you know, there's not a lot of beats in a movie. Even if you're doing a three hour long movie, there's not an infinite amount of beats. Novels have so much material that you gotta weed out what stays and what goes. Um, so it might seem like you have a lot of, you know, um, real estate to, to develop your story, but you don't. Um, an average 100 minute movie is, I'd say about 36 to 40 beats, maybe, maybe more if it's really fast paced but you only have a certain amount of scenes. In a 90-minute script, you know, you have 33-minute scenes. Again, it's not math, but you know what I'm saying is you really gotta pick what you're gonna focus on. It doesn't matter if it's an adaptation or your own work. For your script regarding Timothy Leary, since he had such a vast, long life, um, I'm not sure when he 
passed away. He took his life, correct? He died in yeah in the late nineties. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, he was already um, in his eighties. Okay. Um, sure. How did you know what you what time period, or did what did you cover most of it? Well, actually, it took me several drafts to figure that out. Um, I knew it had to start in the sixties. The first draft I wrote of the script started in 1963, which is when he gets kicked out of Harvard uh, because he gave students uh, psilocybin and LSD. Um, but then I realized I had to go back. I had to start it off in 1960, which is when he gets hired at Harvard. Harvard because it's, he's 40 years old. Uh, he's going through a middle-age crisis. His wife, first wife has just committed suicide recently. No one knows about this. So I figured, you know, I got to start at the beginning. And sometimes it's not easy to know where the beginning is. Um, it's really up to you. So I actually wrote, I think, like two drafts that took place in 63. Then I went back to 1960, which is the current version. Um, and then the beauty of it is you can have at least five or six seasons if you wanted, because every stage of his life is a different, whole different thing. Harvard, uh, California, New York, Afghanistan, uh, Switzerland. You know. um, but only, I mean, I wrote the first draft based on the book and then I went to the public uh, library in New York where there are, are approximately 463, I think, boxes of his belongings, oh, wow. his personal archive. And I, you know, I rifled through that and, and I didn't get to all the boxes, by the way, because that's insanity. Um, I did go through a lot of them over several trips. And, you know, it was, there's nothing I like better than spending time with, you know, studying original sources. Right. And then he had a subsequent relationship with someone that he cared very deeply for, didn't he? But it's debatable whether she was hired. Oh, to spy on him? Or? Um, oh, there was a documentary that came out recently by Errol Morris. I think it's his, his fourth wife, Joanna Harcourt-Smith. Um, Leary had several wives. Um, well, there was a whole debate I had with the producer who was, uh, who was a friend of mine and who was convinced that Leary was a saint. And I had to tell him, um, no, he was, this man was incredibly flawed, very responsible. Um, we, I think he's our way into the counterculture and telling that whole story. I don't think we should use this man as an example of anything because he, he for, for decades he talked about the death of ego and he had nothing but ego. Actually, he was married to, I think, five amazing women and he disrespected all of them and he could never, you know, he could never love them the way they loved him. And it's actually tragic. I know, I mean... I hope none of the fans, Larry's fans, are listening because they're going to kill me. But um, I think he's a very contradictory man. Um, very, you know, he had the, the he had the charm. He could lure people in. Um, he, very smart. Um, but I think the 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 one in that relationship, the one who actually transcended all that, was Richard Alpert, who became Ramdas. So in the show, we have uh, Leary, who's uh, who's a voice of this whole movement, but in a way, I feel like he's disingenuous. And you have Ramdas, who actually did go to India and transcend ego and became this beautiful being.
Can you explain how you outline a screenplay? Yeah. So outlines. Um, I'd say so. <clears throat> first, you have the idea, right? Or you have the the concept, so to speak. Um, and some people have high concepts, you know, like um, which are easier to explain in in a few words. Um, I usually have low concepts in the sense that they're character driven and. <clears throat> that's in a way it's more challenging because you gotta find out what makes them distinctive from other ideas you know the, the maybe the juice the beauty of it is not in the concept but in, in the world and the character so um, I, I do a beat sheet first um, and I use an exercise that uh, Hal Ackerman talks about who I had class with at UCLA called snow plowing and snow plowing is basically um, you set out uh, a certain amount of time, could be 20 minutes, could be 40 or an hour. Usually you don't do more than an hour at a time. And um, you write down possible scenes um, without judging them and not, not stopping, right? So it doesn't matter if they contradict one another, you just keep going. So, because um, they're just possibilities, they're not the whole final thing. Um, and ideally, you, you know, you write, I don't use a computer then, I just write it down um, manually and let's say you do 20 minutes and you just go nonstop. Don't, because if you stop, you're going to judge it. And the point is not to judge yourself, the point is to discover. So <clears throat> you do this exercise a few times over and over again and then you go back to it and then you pick and discard. Like, okay, this is good. This one, not, you know, doesn't work or I'm going to just pick this option. Um, and I'd say after a few times of doing that, you start having a sense of what the structure is. Um, of course, you can also guide yourself with, with uh, books, right? You know, Save the Cat has, has an option of what a structure is. I mean, I feel like intuitively you know that your structure needs um, ups and downs and, and beats of all kinds, and you kind of have a midpoint. Um, so by doing by snow plowing and then by going back to the idea of structure, you come up with the beats. And once you have the beats, which are the bones, the outline uh, is like giving that uh, connective tissue, right? So um, once I'm confident about my beat sheet, then I just start filling out um, those bones with yeah with flesh, which is not too much detail, but enough detail to connect the scenes and make sure that there's a cause and effect relationship between them. Um, and you just expand. Um, so I, I would say there's, I mean, I don't skip any of the steps. You know, from idea I go to beat sheet, from beat sheet I go to outline. Um, I don't need my outlines to be too detailed, I just need them to have the necessary information, especially if I want to have like setups and payoffs. I want to make sure those are in the outline. Um, and then you just start writing. When you're writing these scenes that you don't want to judge and they might be random scenes, are they ones you've already had in your mind or are you almost manufacturing them so that the most, you know, ridiculous idea, like this would never really happen and then once you go back and look at it, you think, well, actually we could lead to that. No, the point is to, to surprise yourself. Actually, um, so I, you know, it's a very different, the, the creative mind that you apply is very different. You, know, you have like your right side of the brain and your left side of the brain, right? And I feel like most of the time in the real world, we're, we're being very rational. Um, so 
if you start writing from that perspective, you're going to come up with probably conventional ideas. And there's nothing wrong with cliches, by the way. Uh, I think they're a great starting point. When you don't know what to do, just write down the cliche so you can get it out of the way. That's better than nothing. Uh, and sometimes I feel we get blocked because you know you try to write the most original thing ever. And you don't do that right away. It's really hard. So maybe it's easier to write a cliche and then you know, maybe change a few things and, and maybe let it evolve and turn. Or, you know, for example, I, I, I always want to set a scene in the most original location, right? So instead of setting it at the, the character's house, which would be the obvious thing because they're going to discuss something intimate, what if they're in church, right? And that, of course, makes the conversation more awkward and maybe funny and they can't really talk. Great, but is that does it serve the story? You know, you don't want to be eccentric just for the sake of being eccentric. Um, but maybe, maybe you plan the scene in the character's house, and then once you have it, okay, what if I change the location? You know, and maybe and maybe it works. But you don't you don't go all the way at once. You know, you want to take it gradually, and once you have it, okay, if I change location, would she say this in public? If she said this in public, maybe it's funny, maybe it's ridiculous. I don't know. Um, sorry, I got I got lost in my my own logic there. Oh yeah, so originality. I feel like it's desirable to be original, and you don't want to be lazy. But sometimes some scenes can only take place in one location, right? I mean, if the character is in prison, they're not infinite options, right? If someone's visiting, they can only meet in the visiting space, right? There's no other option. Um, but if you have time and, and you know, and and, and you want to make it better, maybe explore with certain scenes, unexpected locations. Can you give me examples of these cliches? What's a cliche? Uh, well, I mean, with characters, it's easy because uh, stereotypes and archetypes, right? Um, and we see this all, all the time. So, um, you know, the cop, the preacher, the prostitute, right? Uh, the bossy wife. Um, you don't want to play those characters exactly the way it, as they sound because we've seen that and it's boring. And um, if, if the, the audience is smart, let's not un underestimate the audience. The audience has seen a lot of movies, read a lot of books, whatever. They know. So um, if you're going to play with stereotypes or archetypes, you better find a way to make them slightly different. Or maybe start, you know, Tony Soprano, right? Tony Soprano is a gangster that goes to therapy. If he was just a gangster, they'll be like, okay, I've seen Goodfellas. You know, what's, why am I even watching this? But Tony Soprano has an issue. Again, I'm going to, you know, very classic example, but... He has an emotional issue. He's a gangster, you know. And now it, it doesn't surprise us, but back in the day with the Sopranos, what, 95, 96? I don't know when it came out. It was, it was an amazing concept. Um, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, it happened to me. I have to write gangsters. So what do I do with gangsters? What haven't I seen with gangsters? I don't know. Gangsters singing, gangsters crying. What can I do with them? Gangster that doesn't want to be a gangster but has to, forced well, by his family yeah. or her family, yeah. That could lead somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, as long as you can find, 
to me, the most difficult thing is finding the, yeah, the emotional connection. And by emotional, I don't mean I have to laugh or cry all the time. It's just that it resonates, um, that it makes them three-dimensional, human. And that, that your intuition says this is something that uh, a lot of humans could relate to, right? That I, um, it's just that's, you know, it's, since writers are usually very smart, as, as, as a teacher, as an instructor used to tell me in, in grad school, the smartest people in the room, um, we have a lot of ideas. And I don't mean that in a good way. Uh, ideas are, 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 are a problem because um, you might um, get away with them and there's nothing in you there. It's just, you know, we have, we have stored all these ideas. And I'm like, well, what if, you know, the, what if the cop suddenly decides to rob the bank? Sure, it sounds fun, but what's, what's in there that you care about? You know, why, why do you relate to that? Because he's having a crisis, you know, about his identity and his profession. Well, now we're on to something. Then it's not about robbing the bank. It's about what if a cop no longer believes in the law because he thinks the system is crooked? I don't know. I'm making this up. Okay, that's actually interesting. Tell me more. So I feel like, um, yeah, it's about finding your personal connection. Okay, so we, we know some, some cliche character archetypes. What about scenes? What are some things you see students do, or maybe you did in the beginning, that they were too cliche, whether it's showing up at the best friend's wedding and, you know, you know does anyone here object? And then, you know, just w w the typical <laughs> yes. romantic comedy. I would say um, scenes about couples arguing, uh, tend to lead to a lot of cliches, um, especially if you just play them out very dramatically. And I'm not saying couples don't have very dramatic arguments because they do. But what if you introduce certain elements in there that makes suddenly the scene different? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote on this uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Um, she said something that I, I loved and it blew my She's such an amazing everything. But um, she said, I always have to try to have three different conflicts happening to the character at the same time. And they're all not of the same magnitude. So for example, she needs to get an abortion. It's very hot in the room and she doesn't like how her hair looks. So she's trying to figure out or, or tell her significant other that she needs to get an abortion while checking herself in the mirror while also noticing that she has sweaty armpits. So she writes comedy mostly. So that I can see how that can be a, a dramedy, right? It's very dramatic, but it's also very funny because she's distracted. So if the scene were just her saying, we need to talk, I'm pregnant and I need to get rid of the baby. Okay, sure, that can be a compelling scene, but it's also, I don't know. If you play that way, it's a bit conventional. But if she's concerned about her hair, then that sounds very human. And she's seeing that she's sweating. Yeah. So and she's wondering, did the barista see me this sweaty and disgusting? Exactly. There's so many <laughs> options. And she feels like, oh, my God, I'm pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant. I'm gross. You know, like, ugh, I've never felt so ugly. I wish my hair was, like, straight. You know? So. Sure. I, I think that's, that's great advice. And it's your brother's. Well, <laughs> you just took it to a whole okay, different level. Sorry. Just, All right. Just, I just no, no. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying. 
Okay. Um, just that that would take the cliche. That would also spin it. You know, you know, you know what's interesting though. That opens up because I had this conversation this morning about tone, and I feel like um, tone is such an important uh, element in a story, and um, it's something I do think about right away, even though I can't. I don't think I can avoid it. Tone um, is really hard to define what it is, but you recognize it, right? And most of the creators or filmmakers we love have a very specific tone. Like the Coen brothers have a very specific, kind of ironic, sarcastic, almost sometimes almost depressing tone. Uh, and you know, it's about plot, it's about character. You don't really know where it's at, but it's you can sense it. Um, and I was I was breaking down a story today, actually, and um, I followed the story through where it led me, and at some point it led to a very dark area uh, that I got scared of. And by the way, I would say getting scared of something is a good sign because you know it says it means there's something very personal to explore. But at the same time, I felt it was so dark that it uh, destroyed my tone. You know, and I got worried I would lose my audience. That's one of those moments where you feel like, if I cringe, and not in a, an interesting way, you know, maybe it's worth considering that direction. And it's, I think it's a valid point. Sure. So you know that you kind of took it too far, and it wouldn't work for the story. Um, well, I, I don't mind telling you what, what it what it is because I'm not going to use it. I mean, I had. I had a character with a situation and she's trying to figure out how she feels and why she feels so uncomfortable about what's happening to her, right? And she doesn't know. Which is, I mean, it's, it's odd. It's not a story where she, you know, she's trying to get money. And No, the goal of the character is to figure out why she feels the way she feels, right? A situation triggered a feeling and she doesn't understand it. And it's a very odd thing. To, I mean, I don't know why I do this to myself because it's not something tangible, first of all. You got to be really careful. Do I want to talk about this subject? Am I qualified to talk about it? Does it actually resonate with me, or does it just sound, you know, like it would have an impact? And my gut feeling was like, don't go there. Don't go there because once you introduce certain topics, the story is done. Unless you want to discuss the consequences of that, and I don't want to be the person doing that, you know, and because I, I haven't been through it, and I, I. I hope it doesn't happen to me, and I gotta be respectful. But if my tone is kind of playful, you gotta be really careful where you go. Some things are just not gonna be funny. That's a good point. You know, no matter how you approach it, it's, sure. it's not funny. Sure. Like the vibe is dead. Yeah, yeah. Because then you can't, from that point on, it, it can't be around comedy. It can't be another comedy. element in your story. Yeah. You either make your story about that because you actually will have something to say. Or refrain from it, you know. Sure. But that you know, that's. I mean, I I want to be really careful. Not everything is material for storytelling, unless you know, like Michaela Cole, who did "I May Destroy You," and you know, the show is about that. But she went through it. You know. Yeah. The only thing I could think of is that if you showed the character's life up until that point, that was light and fun, and then if something horrible happens, and then how their life changes drastically after that. But yeah, you can't continue. But the story then is about that. And uh, uh, by the way, I'm not against horrible things happening to your character. I mean, 
I'm just saying there, there are boundaries to me. Um, and there are things that I haven't experienced that I, I'd rather not talk about. What writing process do you teach your students? I try to teach my students, um, give them as many different tools as possible. Um, I don't believe in any dogmas. I don't believe there's one single way to do it. Um, when I teach, so for example, I have a, a whole class for a three hour class for structure and I give, the, give them all the approaches I know to structure, like the, you know, the save the cat approach to it and the Blake Snyder approach to it, uh, the eight sequence um, structure. Whatever, it's whatever helps they find helpful to break, so it's not so daunting to break down story because um, we all feel it, you know, when, you, when you're facing the story, you're like, oh my God, I have so much ground to cover and I don't know. So for example, the eight sequence um, structure is really helpful because you're thinking in terms of 12, 15 pages at a time. Um, so you're, you know, you're writing shorts. I'm talking about features, of course. Um, it's like writing a short units um, and then by thinking of units, you're not thinking about the whole thing. Um, with, um, with TV, well, TV, I mean, there is, there are multiple ways to do TV, but, um, you know, I do give them, I do compare TV structure with film structure in the sense that, um, a drama pilot, you know, the end of the teaser is usually the inciting incident, um, the end of act, um, one, um, is where it kind of gets personal. So the, the end of act two would be the midpoint in a 60 minute, 55 minute um, pilot. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't believe there's one way to do things. I, whatever works for each person. Do you ever find students challenge that because they've, they've read books before they've taken your class or they've taken other classes and they say, well, no, this is actually how it's done. And they like those rules, they like structure. I do believe it's just, there should be structure. I mean, they don't usually question me because they understand that I'm, I'm very straightforward from the beginning. And I said, look, I'm, I'm going to give you um, everything I know. And sometimes, you know, there are different options. But I'm, no, I mean, they're adults, so I'm giving them an option. It's like, I'm not going to tell you there's one single way to do it. I'm going to tell you all the ways I found out over the years. And some of my colleagues prefer this version and others this one and um, you know it's my my role as, a, as an instructor is to give them tools not to, to give them the ultimate truth because there's no such thing actually I would, I would say the most important thing I don't know if you can teach people how to write you can teach them discipline you can encourage them you can show them that it's not impossible um, you, you can share experience, you know, experiences that, that, that reveal that um, you can get frustrated and keep going. You can have failures and get up. Um, it's amazing how many times everyone, including myself and everyone else, we tend to think that what happens to us is only happening to ourselves. And it's ridiculous because uh, it's very um, liberating to hear that other people have gone through the same. Actually, you don't, you don't, you never get, you rarely get a chance, but if you, if you can read first drafts by acclaimed writers, which of course you'll never find because they don't want you to, but um, 
Academy Award writers, winning writers also have awful first drafts. They also have scripts that don't work. Um, you know, it's, it's not that they sit down and write the most perfect script ever. It takes many rewrites. So, I mean, I know Aaron Sorkin will go on and say, like, he wrote uh, The Social Network in three months. And I'm like, maybe. I don't know. You know, I'm sure he's very talented and smart and, and qualified. I'm saying, you know, we all need time to get there. Is that something that's hard for your students to accept? Or, or was that something for you in the beginning that you just wanted to get this idea out there, these characters out there? You didn't want to have to do multiple drafts? Um, you mean if, if they challenge the idea of, of, of rewrites? Sure. Or did you yourself challenge it? Um, I, well, when I started out, um, I had a sort of resistance to rewrites. Um, and it's important to understand that when you resist it, it's because you're scared of it. Uh, and I would say it is, it is scary because um, the first draft, once you understand that the first draft is not the final product, um, it's just your first approach to it. Um, then you understand that the rewrites is where it actually gets tricky. Um, and you know there, there are many um, ways to approach rewrites. Um, it took me a while to learn how to do it as well. I usually use the image. It's, it's like a wound. You know, it, it's a scar that you're reopening. And being, being very dramatic here, but you know, you finish a draft and you're very pleased and you want to step back, right? And, and take some distance. And then you go back to it and you have to reopen the wound. And I'm like, it's all bloody again. And then you have to stitch it up again. Um, I, I, I think that's when you need perspective the most. That's when you could use feedback from close people, um, conversations maybe even the help of a script doctor at some point. Why not? Um, it's really hard to have perspective on your own writing. Sometimes you need some time to go by, maybe weeks or a month before you dive in again. Um, and you need someone's perspective to know what works and what doesn't. And, and maybe you love a scene and that scene needs to go. And you need someone to tell you that scene needs to go. Um, the good thing about working for hire or working with, with, uh, with people is that they actually give you notes. Um, and I could spend hours talking about notes themselves and sometimes they'll give you the best notes and it hurts because you have to work a lot on them, but they're good notes, you can tell. And sometimes you got to find the note behind the note. You know, some, you don't, you can't expect people always to have the perfect note to give you but it's your job to find out what they mean. Um, and also, I, you know, I try to be very careful when someone has one opinion. Okay, I'll see if I consider it or not. But when one note keeps coming up over and over again in different manners, right? But it's the same note. Well, then there's a problem, you know, right? When I, I, a script I, I have to rewrite now that I rewrote a couple of times, it's a period script and um, a note I kept getting back was the main character is an asshole. Why do I care? And at first I resisted saying like, no, it's the 60s. That's how people did things back then. But then, you know, when I keep getting the same note, especially from female readers, they're like, no, that guy's an asshole. 
well, then I have a problem because I'm not making a movie for the 60s. I'm making a movie for nowadays. So even though I'm trying to be very accurate in terms of how I portray the period, my audience is now. So I got to do something about it. So you had to make the character somewhat more relatable and human to today's standards, not um, 60s. Well, I mean, he's a guy who's focused on on his work and is, is um, disregarding his... He's very young. His wife is also very young and they have a baby. So instead of being a good father, which he can't because he's like... He's too young. He doesn't know. I mean, it's not like he means anything by it. He just doesn't know how to do it. So he escapes family, his family's responsibilities by focusing on his work. Um, and the note was, he's being an asshole. I'm like, no, well, he's a kid. You know, he doesn't know. He shouldn't have been a dad in the first place. It's the 60s, back in the 60s. You didn't share that responsibility. And they're like, no, I don't care. You know, I don't care how good he is at his job. She, he left her alone to raise a child. And, you know, there's really no point in me arguing that. What about Don Draper? Well, this is the thing. I, I, I love Mad Men and I love Don Draper and I use that as a reference. Don Draper only works for today's audiences because uh, John Hamm is really sexy. <laughs> okay, and, that's fair enough. Uh, yeah, I, I remember... <laughs> Back when it came out, I was watching it with my girlfriend at the time, and I would say, you know, he's he's disgusting. He's he's an awful person. And she would be like, I don't care. He's too hot. And you know what? There's a point there. I don't know how that they got that that show made before casting. I think it took a while. Um, yeah, he's awful. He's a broken man, but he's John Hamm in a suit. You have read like hundreds of screenplays, correct? When you've interned at these production companies, Guido? Probably, yeah. What did that teach you about writing and, and what came across your desk? It's the best advice I could give any writer. If you want to learn how to write, read scripts. Read bad scripts, which is what you'll mostly do. Read good scripts as well, but um, there's no better way to write than reading scripts. Um, see how different people use the language, uh, the format. Um, some people are more verbose. Some people are very sparse in, in descriptions. Um, some people are really great. I mean, scripts are not literature. They're not, I mean, they have to be engaging, but they're not novels. So if you can be very um, concise and can convey the idea in a snappy way, in one sentence, those scripts really work. Of course, I mean, some people have a great prose, but they're not, there's not a great story there. It's, it's so difficult because, you know, it's, it's, it's a conjuncture of great story, uh, great characters, great use of subtext, right? There are many, many scripts are marred by, the, by characters just stating everything, how they feel. And sometimes you got to do that, but using subtext, you know, good use of subtext, it's, it's, very, it's always appreciated because we, most of the time, people are not, we don't go through life saying everything we feel or think. Actually, in order to avoid conflict, we tend not to, right? Um, especially I was talking about couples, you know, couples don't say everything to each other. Otherwise, they would break up or get divorced right away. So you make a scene about something else. Uh, anyway, um, 
reading scripts helps you understand the format and um, any doubts you might have about format, like how do I structure a phone conversation? Well, scripts that do that teach you. Um, use of language, how to be precise and concise. Um, how to start scenes and end them. You know, some people will just surprise you. Um, every once in a while, try to read great scripts by uh, recognized writers as well. I mean, the the script for uh, Unforgiven, uh, Clint Eastwood's movie, is pff, that's a novel. I mean, I wouldn't use it as an ex it's it's an amazing script. Um, it's just you know, the script itself is epic. Um, I remember the script for um, Nightcrawler uh, is an amazing script. The movie I don't I'm not that crazy about, but the script itself, there's a use of fonts in the script that was really original. It changes the size and type of font just to give you an impression of LA at night and the neon signs and the descriptions in it are perfect. That's you know Nightcrawler. That's a perfect script. Um, to analyze at least. So um, read, read. Reading bad scripts, when you're an intern in a production company and you read bad scripts, it's, it boosts up your, your, your confidence because you tell yourself, I can do so much better than this. And this script, not to talk bad about anyone, but I'm saying this script made it this far? Especially I remember once I was shocked reading a script that was terrible, written in five minutes, and it had typos. Very important. Just check, you know, check grammar and spelling. Typos are really distracting. And everyone will tell you this, you know, it shows, it's not everyone makes mistakes, it's just typos show that you don't care, you know, you, you didn't care enough to check. And you can even use software to check that. So um, reading scripts just, it, you know, it helps you tune your mind into what it is writing a script. Do you think most new writers are overly hard on themselves or they have the opposite where they think it's brilliant? I think most writers are really hard on themselves. Um, of course, you'll meet a few people that will say they're brilliant. Uh, a, I don't know if they actually believe it. And B, if they actually believe that, oh my God, they're, you know, I, I, I don't envy them because they're going to um, hit their head against the wall at some point. Um, I'm not saying people can't be brilliant. Of course, they're, and they're, and they're uh, natural born storytellers. I've met a few. It's just that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a good idea to go through life thinking you're brilliant. Sooner or later, you know, it's going to hurt it for all of us. But it hurts too to think you're not brilliant. And in fact, you're the opposite. So, um, you know, I think we, it's, it would be good to avoid extremes. You know, like That's at true. some point, I mean, the, the older I get, and I'm not really that old, but the older I get, I realize um, what helps and what doesn't help. You know, it's, what's useful? Um, is it useful to think I'm brilliant? No. Is it useful to think I'm an idiot? No. Um, is it useful to think that this is the best, I, I'm doing the best I can and that it's probably going to be good enough because this is what I can offer? And if they don't like it, it's because maybe I wasn't the right person for the project. Maybe. Um, and of course, I say this very calmly now, and then I'm writing the script, and I will say to myself, like, oh my God, this is awful. Like, you know, I wish I, I could do better. Um, 
and I will, or I will also tell myself, this is my best writing. And then, you know, you know, what's funny. Um, many times I thought I did my best writing and no one connected with it. And other times I had a deadline and I wrote it very fast. And I thought, oh my God, this is embarrassing. And people loved it. So whatever opinion you have of yourself, uh, I, wouldn't tr I would try not to take yourself too seriously in general, in life. I like that. So you avoid extremes because it, it also applies to dealing with other people too. Oh, no, I'm, I'm very extreme. I'm saying what I wish I did. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I try to, I try to be mindful about it. Um, I don't always succeed. Sure, sure. I mean, we all want to sort of live in the gray, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, ideally, if I could choose, I would choose to be aware, as aware as I can, as in the moment as I can. And this has nothing to do with writing, by the way. This is life. I mean, um, I feel like uh, there's so many labels that I put on myself and then everyone puts on one another, you know, and, and, and you're meant to uh, categorize yourself. And especially like, what do you write? Oh, I write period dramas. You know, like, well, that's not true. That's what I'm doing now. I don't think that's what I'm going to do forever. Um, and it doesn't help, you know. I know they they need to be able to label you so that they can hire you and that so you know I'm, I'm i'm not trying to start a revolution like you know i am who i am but um if you have to label yourself to get a job do it but internally i try not to label myself i try to be a better writer every day i try to expand my interests and my scope you know and if someday i can write a rom-com why not i mean i don't know when you worked at these production companies interning, out of the hundred screenplays, how many were awful? Uh, I'd say about more than 90% are awful. Or, no, I'm, I'm being mean. I'd say more than 90% are bad. Um, maybe 40% are awful. I mean, because I mean, you got to give people credit. Really bad scripts don't necessarily make it up the ladder because you know you got assistants and their job is their gatekeepers precisely. So um, when I mean scripts are bad, it doesn't necessarily mean they're badly written. It means that you know they're conventional, full of cliches. Um, maybe you know maybe, maybe they stick to genre um, and. Um, and they don't, don't transcend it in any way. Um, lazy in terms of ideas, but I mean that doesn't mean that doesn't mean they're not potentially commercial products. So I don't think that um, people in charge of, of choosing don't have any taste or or can't discern. What I think is that um, you know they're trying to find something that sells. And if you check Netflix ten most watched shows, or they're not necessarily good. Again, I'm not trying to be uh, the judge of what's good or bad. I mean, I, I try to be entertained, but also stimulated, and I want to think and I want to feel. I mean, some people just need, you know, come back from work. They hate what they do, and they want to watch something that takes their mind off it, and it works. Sure, and there are some networks that cater to that, and they sure. have very predictable stories and outcomes, and, and people feel safe in watching that. That's what they want. It is look. It is a business, and and um, I think most of the people involved in in show business are very smart. Um, 
I'm, I don't think execs are, you know, like bureaucrats. I think they're, some of them went to, you know, Harvard and Yale and whatever, and they're really educated and smart. It's just, a, it's a business. So, you know, most of the shows, big uh, networks are gonna put up are probably easy to digest. Sure. I, I get it. It's not what I watch, but then again, I don't represent the, the larger population. That's a good point. So the ones that were really awful probably wouldn't have made it that far in the process. But you say 40%-ish maybe were bad. So then 60% were great? Or then there was a gray area where some were not horrible? No, the, the percentage of great scripts is really small. So great, I mean, let's say good. Let's say, I don't, I'm, I'm generalizing. Let's say between 8 to 10% of the scripts are actually good. Great, maybe 2%, okay, 1%. Wow. wow. It's really hard to find a great script. It's really hard to write a great script. Um, that's why certain, you know, I don't know, Shonda Rhimes did Grace Anatomy. It's what it's the 14th, 15th season. Of course, then eventually she came up with other shows, but she's been she was working on that show for many years, and that was one great script that got it all started. Um, it's really hard to replicate success. You know, some people. The Simpsons, right? Yeah, sure, they did uh, Futurama and you know some other attempts, but the Simpsons are the Simpsons. So it's really, really hard to write a great script. It's really hard to, to find the people willing to take risks to produce it and get it made. Queen's Gambit, you know, big success, what, last year? It took 10 years to get that made. Um, I remember meeting the, the guy who wrote Dallas Buyers Club that movie took 20 years to get made. I'm not saying that's okay, and I'm not saying that's the standard. I'm saying you gotta be ready to know that things take a long time. Unless, unless you wanna go out there and make a really small movie, self-financed or through you know, uh, crowdfunding or something like that, which isn't easy either. Um, and a lot of people do it and hope that it clicks, you know, and. I can, I can think of a few examples where that helped. Um, what's it called? A, a woman walks home at night. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Alone. Uh, yeah, alone at night. Yeah. So um, she was at UCLA before I, I was in, uh, um, I don't remember the director's name, Lily um, Lipor. Iranian. So um, yeah. she went out there and made that movie and it got an audience and she has a career and yeah. good for her. Yeah, um, Armpour or Lily. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you know, a, f a few examples like that. Um, but even, you know, back in the day, Sundance was like the way in. And now Sundance is so commercial and so oversaturated that if you make a movie by yourself, I mean, I don't even know if you can find a, a spot there. Yeah, it's probably become a much different uh, ballgame. And then some of those movies then play other festivals and it's kind of like all the same movies going to these festivals and it's... Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I don't even want to get into the whole sure, we don't have to, thing yeah, because, let's, um, let's you know, as, as a former film critic, <laughs> I know that world very well. Sure. Uh, and I have opinions about festivals, but... Um, yeah, we can stay away. I, I get it. No, yeah. I, I, look, I, I think that um, writing a good script takes a couple of, not even months, I'd say a year or maybe two of rewrites. Um, 
maybe know what you know what you want to say and then you can get it done in six months. I don't know. Would you read every one of those screenplays from start to finish? When I when I had to read them? Yeah, when you're working as an intern at these productions. Uh, yes. Yes. I um well first of all I had to. Um because when you do coverage, um Coverage basically exists so the people above you don't have to read those scripts unless they have to. So what you're doing is you're summarizing. You have to give them a logline, um, a synopsis, maybe a short synopsis and then a longer one of the story, of the whole story. Um, and then say the pros and cons and, you know, and, and choose if you're passing or considering or recommending. And of course, everyone's really scared to recommend because then your taste and your job is on the line, right? Uh, so you gotta be, re most of the times you'll say pass. Uh, and this, you know, because you really wanna make sure if you recommend something, it's that good. Uh, I, as an intern, I did take chances though, and I, there were no consequences. But it, it would happen that they would come to me and say, okay, so tell me more. What did you see in it? I want to hear you, you know, so um, you got to have an opinion. And by the way, this is really helpful as a writer it is, but if, if you want to be an exec someday or a producer, you better have opinions and you better be able to express them in an articulate way. Um, as a writer, not so much. I did, it, I did it to learn mostly and get experience. So you were working with producers. Would they also then read the script from uh, back to front or if front you, to back. If you, can, if you suggest they consider it or even if you recommend it, maybe not themselves, their assistants will. I, I don't know necessarily, but um, you're basically saving them time. Um, but if you waste their time, you won't be there much longer because if they had to read it and hate it, and this is, you know, it's part of the business. Sure. What if your tastes are just edgier and you like something that's more of an art film and they're looking for a feel-good relationship story? Well, what I would say is if you're entering a company, do your research on their mandate. So, you know, if they do horror and, you're, and, and they get for any number of reasons, you know, a, a romantic story with no horror whatsoever, because you never know. You know maybe maybe the, the son of someone they know wrote the script and sent it. I don't, you never know how that works. It's not for them, you know. It's not their mandate. Unless you can ask them, like, hey, I got the script. It's really weird. It's not really your mandate. Do you want me to go on with it? And they'll say, yes, please, read it anyway. I see. So you're going to check. If something is not sort of in their wheelhouse, you'll check with them. You should. Be, yeah, so Blumhouse, right? Blumhouse, that's horror. Right? Everyone knows that. So if you have a, a you know, thriller with spies, it might be a great script. It's probably not. And, and um, by the way, Blumhouse doesn't spend more than three to five million per movie. So you got to do your homework. You know, you're, they're not the right uh, company for it. Maybe it's a great script and you tell them, hey, by the way, this is not your mandate, but it's a great script. Okay, we'll send it over to our friends somewhere else and they owe us a favor. I don't know. You know, but it makes you look good to know what their mandate is. Sure, sure. But if you're recommending stuff that's just, then they're going to sit you down and, you know. Gita, did, why are you setting it, us this? It didn't happen to me. <laughs> I'm just imagining. I mean, sure. Mm -hmm. um, you got to know what your role is as well, you know. And as an intern, yeah, you don't have a lot of power. How many of the screenplays that you read went on to be films? 
less than 10, probably. Um, some of them, this is the thing, some of them I, I knew were already going to get made. Uh, some of them, you, no, you, knew, you knew they were going uh, around town. So it's not like only the production company had that script. Uh, and you could tell. You know, I, I remember there was a script about the Kelly gang in Australia. Um, that movie was obviously ready to get shot. I mean, it was so well. I don't even know what they, they made me re read it. Maybe because they wanted to invest in it. Um, but it didn't feel like someone sent that, you know, on spec. That was ready to go. Um, I'm trying to remember. There were amazing scripts I read that didn't get made, and I'm surprised. Oh, you know which, which script I, I read, and I haven't seen the movie yet? The one with um, Michael Keaton Worth that just came out recently about the 9-11 lawyer. I read that script. Oh, yes. That yeah. was great. So I read that script in uh, 2016. We and just it, watched that. And it just got, mm -hmm. right, it got made 2020, I think. Right, yeah, that was... Uh, so, you know, mm -hmm. two, four to five years. That's not that bad, actually. But, you know, it takes a while. So you said there were a few that were excellent that didn't get made. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I remember an amazing script about uh, Anne Frank and um, the woman in New York who got the book published uh, for the first time in the 40s, I think, or, or maybe early 50s. So how the, um, the manuscript was discarded at first and this, this junior editor, woman who she wanted to become an editor, the woman who f discovered the book and said, hey, wait a minute, this is actually uh, relevant. Um, that script, I remember reading it and I got very emotional about it. And that's really hard to do. It's really hard to get an emotional reaction from a script. I mean, if you can make people laugh with a script, that's a lot. If you can make people teary-eyed, wow, that's very unique. I remember that script very well because um, I was at work. I, you know, I was just I was about to break into tears, and I'm like, I'm at I'm at, I'm at an office. I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be crying in public. They're gonna ask me if something's wrong at home. I'm like, no, it's the script. It's just so good. Um, no, I mean, I, tons of respect for that writer. And it was never made. Not that I know of, but I mean, sometimes it takes ten years. Um, Hopefully it gets made. How do you like to create characters? So when, when, you're, when it's based on real people, um, the challenge is to understand who they are beyond the obvious. Um, meaning, you know, and, and you'll see this with biopics. It's um, such a, especially when they don't work, right? It's, I don't want to get the public persona because I can find that on YouTube. Um, um, especially, at, at, you know, if it's indulgent and, um, yeah, mostly lazy, you know, self-conscious. So I'm not going to talk bad, criticize any biopics, but it's like, I already knew that, you know, that's an actor playing that guy. Um, but I want to see what happens backstage. I want to see what happens when they're alone. I want to see who they were before they were uh, well-known or confident about themselves. Um, I want to see what they do when, yeah, when the world is not watching. So um, with the Chicago script, I actually got a chance to talk to the guy 
who it was based on. Um, and that was a that was a big there was a big challenge in there because he was a he was a revolutionary and I, I think he still is a revolutionary. So when he read my script, um, of course you don't you know you never adapt reality exactly as it is. You gotta uh, change it up a bit and you gotta adapt it for it to be a story because reality is chaos. Stories have a structure, right? And you got you gotta fudge the facts a little bit, not too much, ideally. So he wanted it to be like a documentary. So he basically called me all sorts of names. We had a great relationship until he read the script and he was like, no, you didn't write it exactly as I told you. I'm like, well, that's not a story. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there, but what are you, you're trying to understand the person, how they see the world, their contradictions, um, you know, how, how they are three-dimensional people. When you're making up characters, it's not that different in the sense that um, you're trying to find in your own database um, attitudes that resonate and that would build uh, a possible individual. Um, and some just filter in there when you're writing. You know, as I said, you know, when you write a, a couple fighting or or a, a daughter, mother and daughter fight or father and son fight, whatever, it's hard not to think of your own experience. Uh, either uh, intentionally or unintentionally. Um, so um, there are guiding questions you can use always. Um, I remember there was, a, there was a, like a six-question uh, questionnaire that uh, Neil Landau gave me at UCLA. Again, I had great instructors at UCLA, uh, people who I, I still talk to. Um, and it was basically, uh, the questions were like, what's... Um, What's the trait that most um, that you like least about yourself? You know, it was like introspection questions, but then how to apply that to character? Like, what's your crutch? What's your strength? What's um, so again? When when I when I teach character uh, on UCLA, I mean, there um, I give them multiple techniques. Ask all the possible questions. Observe. There's an exercise I make them do where it's like eavesdrop people. Don't be creepy, but you know, when you go to the supermarket, eavesdrop on conversations and see how people um, relate to one another. It's just um, in terms of dialogue, right? Notice how some people don't finish their sentences. Notice how uh, the euphemisms, what they avoid saying. Notice what they actually say and what's implied with their body language. Observate, I mean, observation is always the key to character and dialogue. Walking down the Santa Monica Strand, you'd pick up fantastic Jesus. conversation. You don't even have to eavesdrop, you're just there and people... Um, yeah, they're not even, you know, they're not even concealing what they're, they're just <laughs> saying it out loud. I'd say anywhere in LA, mm -hmm. cities like... Well, the truth is, if you're a curious person, you'll find characters anywhere. It doesn't have to be LA, it can be any town. Um, just notice how people are very specific, you know, about um, how they present themselves. I always say this to, to, to my students when they have to pitch, I'm like, remember that you're not, it's not just your words, it's how you present yourself. They've already started judging you the, when the moment you came in. So, you know, choose how you're going to dress for that meeting, how you're going to present yourself. Um, 
just because know that they're they're paying attention, right? Um, the same thing with the characters is there. You know, how do they dress? Do they care about how they look? Do they care about appearances? Do they not? How do they feel about aging? You know, do they care if they're wrinkled or do they not care at all? Or are they overcompensating? Exactly. For aging. Do they have any physical issues that affects their personality? Now, I mean, not per se. What I'm saying is that affects their personality. Usually there's a connection. Sure. Yeah. Or are they always, another thing is, is someone that's always bragging about themselves? That that speaks volumes. Yeah. Um, well, that's, you know, it's always, um, that's why I, I like to have characters intimate moments because, um, it's very, your persona and um, your actual self are very different. How many people are depressed and we don't know it? That's true. Right? I mean, and now, thankfully, we're talking about it in public, but even now, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be honest with you, but there's a part of me that this is my persona. I mean, we can't help it, you know? I'm doing the same thing. I mean, <laughs> I'm doing my best to be myself, but, you know, uh, just. We're even here. Yeah. When you're in front of other humans, your behavior changes and you don't behave the same way in front of your family, your loved ones, you know, your friends, your enemies. That's true. The cops. You're just someone else. <laughs> the checker at the, you, you're happy. Hey, how was your day? Oh, great. Hey, oh, everything's We have fantastic. so many masks, you know? Yeah. So many masks. <laughs> Did you catch that game the other night? Oh, it was great. Yeah. All right. Well, you take it easy. If you go to the DMV, <laughs> you're going to try to be really friendly because you know that those people hate being, they hate their jobs and I don't blame them. So you're like, hey, it's beautiful, whatever, I don't know. How do you find out what a character wants? I guess, I guess it has to be something that I'm interested in. Um, sometimes character will come out of the, the want comes first. The quest comes first and then, I mean, it's not always the same. It's always different, but sometimes um, you want to explore a certain quest and then you wonder who would be the most interesting person to me in this quest, in this mission. So is it the most um, adequate person or is it the most, or, or really a fish out of water, you know? So um, I have a thing where um, I tend to have characters on a spiritual or um, yeah, abstract uh, quests. And it's, it's really an issue. I, I don't make it easy on myself. They don't want material things. I've managed to figure this out over time. Um, and I've, I've um, had some problems with people. Like, I, what's their goal? I don't get it. It's like, she won't. She's trying to become this or he's trying to understand um, with Leary was he's like he's trying to find he promised Harvard the 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 future of psychology a new method and that's why he got hired and he doesn't know what that is so and his students hate him and if he doesn't find that method he promised them he's going to be out of a job a widower without a job at 40 with two kids and by 40 I mean 1960 40-year-old. Not today, being to 40... It's means, nothing. It's nothing. But in 1960, Don Draper was 36. So if you were 40, you were old. <clears throat> so he's, you know, he's trying to find something and he doesn't know what it is. And I like those sorts of challenges. 
um, it does, you know, it does um, turn me into somewhat um, of an intellectual writer, I guess, because I'm pursuing ideas. Um, but that's okay. I mean, if I guess if the, the day I want to write a script about uh, people pursuing money, I can. It's always easier if what they want is a loved one or money, you know, because it's tangible. What if it's the idea that they think money will... I mean, what, what if it's this elusive carrot that, that, okay, they get the money, but then it doesn't fix what they thought it would fix? Or... Oh, but I think that's inevitable. That's the thing. You know, it's the thing with the want and the need, right? So they want money, but they need to change, you know, the way they're approaching life in general. I don't know. So it's this idea that before the midpoint, there's the want, and after the midpoint, it's about the need. And movies are usually, I mean, there's, there's a moral element to movies, Hollywood movies at least, which is, you know, they were, they were trying to be the biggest um, investors in Wall Street, and it's actually about uh, finding someone who loves you. This is a classic, I mean, we've seen this over and over and over again, right? Um, he thought he was after the job, and he was actually after love. Um, but it's easier if you say it's a movie about people desperate for money. Of course, when you actually watch the movie, it's not about that, you know. The want is usually not, doesn't define what the movie's about. And the reason why this works, it might sound schematic, but the, the reason why it works is that that's how people actually are. We, you know, we... There's a lot of denial, I feel like, in everyday life, and we tell ourselves we want things, and we don't really know what we want or, we, you know, what we need. Of course, movies do that in 90 minutes or two hours, but in life, you realize years later that, you know, I was pursuing, I thought I wanted to make it big in Hollywood, and I actually wanted to, you know, I don't know, heal my wounds from the past. If it rings a bell, it's because a lot of people are going through that. Sure. Well, a lot of people that go into entertainment Sure. There's interesting things that drive them. Um, incredibly happy, satisfied people don't need to tell stories. You don't think so? Um, there was, there's nothing dramatic about it. And I feel like, no, I'm not saying we should be miserable. Uh, let me clear, clarify this. I don't think we all should be tortured and, and sad. I'm saying that um, movies need a certain dramatic element, an element of conflict. No one wants to see a movie about uh, two people who are perfectly in love all the time. That's true. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be dogmatic. What I'm saying is that we, you need events and this and then, but, you know, it can be and, and, and. It has to be like, but, however, you know, and so, um, I don't know. I, I personally feel like the need to express yourself comes from something that you need to understand, something that you're lacking, something that... You could say the same for someone who writes a piece of code. They're creating something. There's an artistry to that code. Sure, I mean, I've never written code, so I, I can't talk about that. I mean, I've, I, any any time you create something is because you feel like something's missing, right? That's what I'm saying. Like you're not. It doesn't come from a place of total satisfaction. Um, I'm not saying there should be something missing in your life. And if you get, and if whoever gets to a point where they feel totally satisfied, man, I'm sure that's awesome. I'd love to be there, but. I feel like the second you you become enlightened and at peace with the universe and everything, I don't know why I would sit down and write a script. You know, I'd be just I'd be basking in existence. I see. 
I mean, you know, not not to get too philosophical and bit. Um, and again, I'm, I don't mean that you have to be a tortured soul. You know? No, uh, and I'm sure the people that write, you know, the classic, come back home for the high school reunion, and you know, and it's all in a neat package, and it turns out everything works out okay. You know that that's not that's different than somebody who writes about you know scamming investors on Wall Street or something. I mean, it, it, there's a different different mindset there. Maybe I don't know. There's room for everyone. Look, um, mm -hmm. this is the thing. The, the The audience, again, I think the audience is smart. So if you if you have a movie or a story where um, a family is totally at ease and they're all happy together, after probably. 10 minutes or 15, the audience is going to be like, something's going to happen, you know, something, something's bad's going to happen. And then half hour goes by and they're like, wait, when's something going to happen? And then, you know, an hour goes by and they're perfectly happy eating uh, peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> and you're like, what am I watching? There's nothing happening. Right. So that's, you know, even if you want to write a perfectly happy story, the audience is expecting something, some conflict. Um, and, and I don't, I, don't, I don't feel conflict is something artificial that you insert into the story. Life is full of conflict, you know, like out there it's just, you're stuck in traffic, that's conflict. Yeah, it's not someone died, but you're like, oh my God, I can't get to, I, wait, I can't wait to get out of my car and I've been in traffic for half an hour and I got to use the restroom and oh my God, I'm going to get home and I haven't bought uh, food for the cats. That's conflict all the time. I think you've said that good writing demands honesty and a large degree of emotional involvement. Yeah, I certainly believe it. Um, I think it's the most difficult part of the equation. Um, there's certain concepts like honesty or freedom, you know, that I know what it is, but I can't define, like, what is honesty? Um, I feel like you know when you're being honest, and that's why intuition is such an important part of it. You, only you can know that. You can, and you, you got to be honest first of all with yourself, uh, and that's why I question the notion of idea so much. Which is, I had a great idea. Is it honest? Um, does it resonate? Does it tingle? You know. Um, no. Then let it go. I mean, of course, you you know, it's if you can have a lot of ideas, that's great. We all do, but it's just, is this the story I want to tell? Is this um, what I want to talk about right now? And I'm talking strictly from if you have a choice, right? I mean, again, if you're if you're hired, you got to find your honesty within that material, because it's first and foremost a job, right? You're an artist, but you're getting paid to do something, so. If you have a write a, got to write a procedural, well, find your honesty um, and make it work without, within that frame. But if you're writing your own story, um, we're, we're all constantly changing, uh, right? And we're not the same person we were two or five years ago. So what you're going to be interested in now or what resonates is not going to be the same thing. And that's the problem sometimes with rewrites, which is you wrote the script at a certain point in your life, and then maybe you have to rewrite, to rewrite it two years later and you're in a different point in your life. So it's really hard because you have to reconnect with that emotional you know, state 
And maybe, you know, maybe you wrote that script when you were getting a divorce and you were heartbroken and it was so raw and so real. And now two years later, you've gotten over your divorce and you're perfectly content by yourself. And you're like, oh my God, I got to go through that again. You know, <laughs> and, and it is part of the challenge. I mean, you get through it through craft, I guess. Or you go to the memory bank of emotions, but because um, it's not like, I mean, it's not like you have to be in a constant state of emotional turmoil, right? Actually, that's the worst thing to write. But you, you must have gone through the experience to know that it's real and that you know what it feels like. Um, so if, I, if you ask me to des describe what honesty is, I don't really know, but I know when I'm being honest. And it, it takes courage and it takes, you know, and it's exhausting. You got to tell yourself, this is not truthful. When I'm writing, it's good writing. Yeah, sure, I'm a good writer. But this is not the story I, I got to tell. Um, or I can do better than this. Or I got to dig deeper. Uh, right now, this morning, I was working, I'm rewriting something. Um, and I, I wrote a, a pretty decent first draft, I'd say. And I sent it to the right people, the people I trust, and they gave me great feedback. Great. Um, very, very profound. And they said, you got to be careful because you did a good job, but <clears throat> this is a bit superficial. You got to dig deeper. If you don't want this to be um, a bit lame, you got to dig deeper. And this is not what the story is about. Like your story is not what, you th what you're saying it's about. It's not really about that. So my honesty there is to say they're absolutely right. And I had a vague feeling about it and they're telling me that and I got to listen to it. Um, so the, the challenging thing is, so this morning, you know, I didn't just sit down and write. I had to figure out, okay, how do I dig deeper? Why do I want, what, what do I want to say? And no one can tell me that. You got to figure it out yourself, right? You can ask friends, but they're not going to have the answer because only you know your material. So. You know, I've been trying meditating um, and I'm new at it, so I don't really know how to do it. But just like, you know, closing your eyes, taking deep breaths and trying to go deeper within and see if something comes out of that. Uh, like, what do I actually want to say through this? Uh, and it's that process of, you know, being patient with yourself, but also don't get don't get distracted, you know, be patient, but don't do like 10 minutes and move on to something else because it's very easy. Oh, I have to answer some emails, you know. No, 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 no. Don't get distracted. Take the time. Figure it out. Um, so I don't Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know what the answer is. I know that you, you got to first and foremost be honest with yourself. And you went to people for feedback who didn't totally just gush over it. They, they, but then they didn't rip you apart. So they gave you, this is great, but I need you to go deeper. There's more to this. Yeah. This is just skimming the surface. Their feedback uh, confirmed that they were the right people to give it to. And they identified the problems that I suspected myself without me having to say it. Um, and they gave me the right amount of validation and said, you know, it's not that... Uh, far away you're not you know it's closer than you think but <clears throat> this is one of the best feedback I got actually was you're missing a part of the equation um, 
so this 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 guy and I wanted to, I wanted to be the producer. He said, um, "Well, I don't know how to explain it without. Well, I'm not going to reveal the whole story because sure, it doesn't matter. Sure, no, okay. What I'm saying is, there's an object that produces an emotion in someone, right? And she's trying to understand why she's reacting the way she is to the object. And this guy said, "It's not about the object. You're making it about the object." And the answer is that there's something happening in her life before the object comes into it and she's not aware of it. She thinks her marriage is perfect. She thinks her professional life is perfect. And what the object does is reveal that it's actually not as great as she thought. So the object itself doesn't mean that much. Yeah, sure, you, you can explore what it is, but it, put, you know, it, it causes if, if her life is like a pond, it, it's the stone that causes the ripple effect. So I'm like, mind blown. Yes, yes, good point. It's missing emotional impact because I haven't done that part of the work. So it's yeah. an object that reveals an unraveling. I was making it about the object itself. And that's too cerebral, you know. It's like, no. You can then figure out why the object has that effect on her. But it's not about that. It's about herself and how little she actually knows herself and how that the whole thing unravels and she realizes, wait a second, do I actually love my husband? I thought I did. Does he actually know me? Do I know myself? My job, I thought it was so stable and, you know, uh, and this woman, who is this woman, my mentor? You know, which is an interesting th script to write, but I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, it's not as easy as... Yeah, they want to win the tournament. Can they make it? Can they get to the finals? You know, that's another story. That's a progression. Here, the progression is not as clear. I mean, you got to figure out, okay, it starts off with the object. It ends with her discovering herself. I got to fill out the rest, you know? What's the journey? Um, and there is no clear-cut answer. I mean, only each person has their own way to answer that. Um, see, but that, that's, talking about challenges, that's a challenge. This script is driving me crazy. I mean, why did I put myself in this position? Well, I guess because I, um, I don't know. It's what I have to write right now. And that's what you were talking about maybe earlier, is just getting lost in the story, and all great writers will go through that maybe, just because yeah. it's not going to be clear-cut. Um, well, this is the thing. Um, sometimes you come up with an idea, and um, I don't know how commercial what I'm writing this thing is, but uh, this is one of those scripts I'm writing for myself um, because it's almost the end of the year, and I can. I mean, I've you know, while I'm waiting for a contract to come through, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to write this now. Um, if you want to be more commercial, of course, you can't be that. Um, you know, you got to be more grounded, I guess. Um, so you can find references, and I, you know, I always tell my students, um, steal, steal not in terms of content, steal in terms of structure, right? Find comps, find movies that are similar to yours, and break down the structure. Not the, not what we're actually seeing. I'm not saying steal characters, steal dialogue. No, that's awful. What I'm saying is, if is your movie similar to Wes Anderson's style, then? Go check out the Royal Tenenbaums and see, okay, scene one, character A says this thing to character B, scene two. So the structure, how, how does it evolve? And then you can fill out that structure with your own ideas.
And this is, this is the history of art, right? Because you're not really stealing because it will never resemble that work because by stealing it, it's becoming yours. And I mean, the whole history of filmmaking and, and, and storytelling works that way, right? Shakespeare was stealing from the Greeks. It's fine because you're not stealing the essence, you're stealing the structure. Um, so I do that all the time. I look for comps. I study the structure, um, especially if they're great. I'll see what they do, even the subplots. I'm like, look, they have this subplot. Interesting. Was it necessary? I don't know, but it's great. It adds flavor to it. Um, yeah. What do I need? What, what, don't, what don't I need? What can I get rid of? What was the structure of Nightcrawler? Um, Nightcrawler, for example, it's, it's a very, uh, it doesn't innovate in terms of structure. It's, um, it's a very clear progression. Um, it's about a guy living in the margins of society. Um, he's not even a part of society and he's, there's something off about him. So it's how he takes advantage of a crooked system to escalate in it until, you know, exploiting uh, the flaws in it. It's interesting because he has no arc. So in terms of structure, it's actually, it's, if, you, if you check the it's very easy to recognize the inciting incident, the, you know, the first act break, the midpoint, the low point. It's, it's, it's almost, it's external almost, it's obvious. Because the movie's not about that. The movie's obviously about escalation. What's interesting is that this guy, the hero is an anti-hero and um, he doesn't have an arc. So usually it's desirable for characters to have an arc to learn something, so to say, to change, to evolve. This guy, since he is um, a sociopath and it's, it's really hard to identify with him, but he's also a victim of the system, he doesn't change. And it's how he ends up winning. So it's a very pessimistic story. It's a movie about how this awful guy finds his niche and exploits it and his people around him and yeah, makes a lot of money and doesn't pay the price for it. Um, but the structure, it's, it's very easy to copy or, 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 learn, or borrow from because it's just the beats keep escalating. What about the Rene Russo character? Does she have an arc? Uh, she has a little bit more of an arc, I think. Um, it's a, a descending arc, you know, in the sense that she doesn't get any better. She actually succumbs to this guy's ambition, like never-ending ambition. Uh, she's a bit more human in that sense. Um, it's it's a weird movie because it's it kind of it kind of feels like a movie with a message and movies with a very strong message. You know, it's not very dramatic to have a very strong message. You know, like um, movies shouldn't be a vehicle for uh, ex um, exposing an idea. No. Oh, no, I mean, again, I, I don't mean to say how things should be. It's just that you don't want to be didactic. You know, you don't. I I don't like movies that tell me what how to feel or think. Um, I like movies that contradict me or you know, make me question my own beliefs. And Nightcrawler, in a, in a weird way, gets away with that. I don't feel like they're lecturing me, but it's about like, look how awful the society is, right? Like, look how obsessed uh, and addicted we are to the news cycle that even this guy producing news is well received. Sure. Um, I don't know. Look, I'm, I'm, 
I might be wrong about this because I'm thinking about network. Speaking of that, back and 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 back in the day, 1976, I think. And network has a very strong message, and I love it. So, I guess it's all a matter of how you do it. We hear a lot of writers say that it's impossible to pitch their story ideas to Netflix. Recently, you pitched a show to Netflix. Is that correct? Um, no, I, I I didn't recently pitch a show to Netflix. Um, I um, I don't have the experience of pitching to Netflix. I pitched to other. Um, Networks or, or, or streaming services. Um, I've I've had meetings at, at, at Netflix and they were very cordial, I'd say. But um, I'm curious, what what do they say about what makes it so impossible to pitch? Well, maybe that it's closed. That you would have to have someone quote walk you in because it's so sought after, oh. and and that would make sense that there's a barrier to entry. You know, especially now because it's you know. Yes. So I mean, um, before you could just pitch, you know, with with a, a log line or a proposal or something. I think with Netflix now, you need to have, for sure, a script and maybe two. Uh, you know, if it's a show, maybe two episodes written. Uh, yeah, sure. So Netflix doesn't need that much content. They, you know, they have a lot of sources to get it from, uh, or they even buy already produced content. And they they recently bought a couple of movies that I was surprised, like. You know, Mexican movies like a, a cop movie and um, Prayers for the Stolen, which is the Mexico entry for the Oscars. And I was pleasantly surprised because I thought, wow, those are actually interesting choices. I don't know who they have in mind. A cop movie, I, I love Alfonso Ruiz Palacios, the director, but it's a very odd choice for Netflix. Like, who, you know, who are they, who's their target audience? But then again, I don't know how much they paid for it, so maybe it's not a significant investment. You said you did go to Netflix to at least um, give some ideas. I, yeah, I remember a meeting I had at Netflix, um, and I was actually surprised. This was 2019. I was surprised how aware they were of um, international shows. Um, this was um, before this this latest trend, where you know the Squid Game is an international phenomenon, and uh, some of the Spanish shows like a Money Heist. So um, there's been a big change in the last two or three years in terms of um, uh, American audiences opening up to foreign content, you know, and, and Parasite winning the Oscar, and suddenly people are reading subtitles. And I don't mean just in LA. I mean, not, you know, because of course LA is very cosmopolitan. But um, so when I met with them, they were seeing that was going to happen. It was the beginning of something. And they were very aware of shows in Argentina and Brazil and South America, um, which was interesting. Um, so that was the, the impression I got that um, we were getting into, and I think we're right in the middle of that, where it doesn't matter where the content is produced as long as it's good. And I think the Squid Game is, I mean, I'm not talking about the quality of the show, which I think is pretty decent. I'm not a big fan, but. Um, it's, it's original and uh, people don't care. If it's good, they'll watch it. Yeah, so. How did you get your meeting at Netflix? Um, so I, I, um, I was involved in a fellowship called Tomorrow's Filmmakers Today, um, where I met uh, mostly for, for Latino filmmakers. And uh, I met a bunch of um, other colleagues that, you know, that ended up playing a really important role in my life, um, friends, colleagues. 
And that's how we got a meeting. That time we got meetings with uh, different places, with uh, HBO, with Netflix, um, with Disney. Um, and they really, you know, it, it was they received you with a ceremony and everything. Like it was a big deal. Um, and you know, it's good because I mean, even though it's 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 not easy to get get anything picked up by them, it's good to know that they're there and that you're part of that. Um, environment right and then and the thing about being in LA is that it's all happening there I mean you can just go into the Hollywood offices and it's that you know Netflix is around the corner um, I haven't pitched them yet though but um, I'm open to it so you were there as a group with, with other individuals who were all yeah we all got a chance to talk to them I mean so it, it, it wasn't a big group so the chance to get to know them and, and meet and um, yeah, it was great. What did you bring with you? To the meeting? Mm -hmm. um, well, I didn't get a chance to show them my script, um, but I did talk about what I was working on and my previous experience and there's so much about it that's not just what you write but who you are, you know, in this. So people are just also investing in you, I feel like. Um, your previous experience, your background, your interests, your passions, um, and if you're and they want to spend time with you, so it's just a matter of introducing yourself and telling you, this is what I write, this is what I do, this is what I like, you know, this is my my plan. What does it mean to be bold? I think you said something where you you have to be bold to make it in Hollywood. What does bold mean? Yeah, I'm laughing because I, t t I mean. Again, make it in Hollywood. It's an expression that I, <laughs> I said it, but it makes me cringe, you know, because make it. It's like, what is making it? The more time I spend here, the less I know what it means. It's like to get, yeah, to get paid, I guess, to do something you love. Um, you got to be bold in the sense that you got to put yourself out there. And it's really hard. And, you know, we all struggle with it, which is um, sometimes we feel like we're more comfortable in a place that's not really comfortable, which is, you know, I'd rather not go to that event or that screening or I'd rather stay home and watch TV because it's so hostile and all that. And sometimes you got to show up. Um, you know, you got to send those emails. And the thing with emails or, you know, or texts, if you have the phone number and you have a relationship, sometimes they don't, you don't get replies, you know. You, uh, you get rejections. People ignore you. They don't get back to you, you know? You think you're going to meet and the meeting gets canceled. So being bold is um, being persistent, you know, being, getting out of your comfort zone because your comfort zone is not really comfortable. You think it is. I mean, and I'm, I tell this to myself every day. I think, you know, I'm a writer. What, what do I do? I'm, what I know how to do is to write and, you know, well, no. It's not it, because you can be an amazing writer and no one will notice. Um, and it's hard, you know, learning to put yourself out there is hard. And sometimes surround yourself with friends who do it and learn from them. I've, I, you know, I, I hate it, but I had to teach myself, you know, go out to that event, meet people, follow up, um, you know, friends that can get you into things. Tell them, can you get me into that event? You know, and, and you meet people. Of course, then, you know, you got to have something to show and all that. Um, 
be nice to everyone, you know, invite them, ask, ask them out for a coffee or drinks. Um, at some point, things will start moving by themselves, you know. Uh, the other thing I noticed with time, no one likes to read scripts, so I've been thinking of directing something myself. Uh, I'm actually writing something I want to direct because people don't like reading, but they like watching. So um, even if you don't get into Sundance or whatever, it's something to show, you know. And um, I think the best way to make something is not thinking about the result, but um, just doing it because you feel like you have to, you know. Um, so there's not one single way to do it. This is what I'm doing right now. And hopefully it pays off. And I know you said earlier that the term making it makes you cringe, and, and I, I get why that would be, but do you think the longer that you're here or that we are here in this town or in the industry that the ter term making it, the needle moves? So it's like this spectrum, and, and making it when you first got here would be one thing, but then after you've been here a long time, you realize, no, there's not really a making it because it's then one project to the, to the next, and that idea of success, it just keeps moving. You know, there's a carrot that you can't grab. I think, I think it's healthy to demystify the, the idea. Uh, I think it was Gertrude Stein that used to say there's no there there, you know, in the sense that um, one thing that has been helpful living here is realizing that 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 I aspire to is here. I mean, that um, you know, I got a chance to meet in Vegas uh, Tom Cruise, right? Oh, nice. And it was just, we were just two guys in a room. Sure, he's a mega star and whatever, and his, you know, everything shines about him. But, you know, the fact that I can have access to that guy and, he, and we can talk means that it's not a different world, you know? Um, it's funny, when I, back in my country in Argentina, people ask me, like, so what's Hollywood like? I'll say, well, it's mostly a bunch of people in offices. You know, it's not glamorous. Sure, I mean, you go to the Emmys or the Oscars or whatever, and they're glamorous, but the rest of the year, it's just a lot of people in offices saying yes, no, yes, no. Do we have the money? Do we want to spend the money? And then going with shoots. And, you know, shooting anything is not glamorous at all. So it takes a long time, you know. Uh, it takes a lot of waiting. This is the thing no one talks about, you know, like movies are glamorous. No, movies are not glamorous. Events are glamorous. Shooting a movie is strenuous, uh, it's exhausting, can be frustrating. Um, that's why actors have trailers, because they have to wait. You know, <laughs> you gotta sit up. Um, and then when you're in development, you're meeting in offices having coffee. And a lot of times they're just saying no. Because it's, from their side, the exec side, it also takes courage, you know. Saying no is easy, you don't waste money. Saying yes, well, that's where it actually starts. Um, I don't know. I guess we're all here because we think that it's possible. It's possible to, to do what we want and get paid for it. It's possible to um, make a career out of it. And when, when you're here, the truth is, I, you know, I think about this often, is I got to remind myself there are more things in life than a career. I mean, of course, I got to pay a rent. And that's a big concern. You know, I got to make a living. Ideally, I can have enough money to also buy other things and eventually send my kids to college and all that. But, um, you know, we get so obsessed. The whole, the whole struggle here, the hustle, 
you get obsessed with it's all about work and i'll work 24 hours a day if i have to and weekends it's like no what's the point you know especially if you do something creative it's really hard to do something creative if all you're doing is working um you gotta find some balance or, tr or try at least i mean if you have no choice i get it but um, it can't all be about work all the time and making it it's not sustainable I see you know I see very young people who are exhausted um, again because I want to talk about the backside as well you know like people who are actually doing really well and are stressed out and are exhausted and are not sleeping I'm like you gotta sleep you gotta eat you know <laughs> anyway when you tell your friends in Argentina that it's Hollywood is really a lot of people in offices, what's their reaction? Um, I guess some people ignore me because they want to keep thinking whatever they want to think. People who are in the film industry there, which is a, it's barely an industry, it's way smaller. I mean, there's a lot of production, but I think they find that um, interesting, encouraging. They're like, oh, really? That makes sense. Or they ask me, do you go to the beach? And I say, rarely. I don't, you know, I forget there's a beach here. <laughs> you know, I'm a writer. I'm just, uh... I think it's, you know, every time you reveal something, um, the back, you know, the backstage or the backflip of, uh, of something people imagine, it's always interesting. Nothing, you know, nothing's as glamorous or as exciting from the inside. It's um, a good point. Hopefully the writing itself is exciting, you know. The other thing I always say is a lot of the times the people in charge, the people who have the power, don't know what they want um, until they see it, you know. So if you get rejected, um, it doesn't mean your script is bad or it it's not worth it. I mean, it's all very subjective. You know, it's, it's very easy to get discouraged when you get turned down in contests or fellowships and you're like, oh my God, I'm awful. I'm not good enough. Maybe, you know, maybe they, they were just looking for something else. I was a finalist, for example. I mean, one of NBC's writing programs, I was a finalist and I did really well in that interview. Um, and I didn't get it. And um, they told me it's, you know, don't take it too hard themselves they said you know it's like we had to pick I don't know six seven people and so I didn't I said you know what I could have been one of them I mean it's just it's also a matter of luck and you know context this project you want to that you're writing to direct do you plan on shooting it here in the states no I'm, I'm actually it's interesting I I'm, I'm writing that to shoot in Argentina for several reasons because I'm, I'm setting it down there um, and also to be perfectly honest because the exchange rate is really beneficial so um, if you have dollars right now you can uh, you can do whatever you want in Argentina and you know dollars go a long way again not to imply that I'm going to exploit <laughs> my fellow countrymen because uh, I, I intend to pay really good salaries but um, you know it makes a difference the currency fluctuates a lot there? Yeah, inflation. There's a really big inflation. Um, but again, I mean, you, you, can, you can get a, 
an amazing um, crew and uh, equipment and everything and uh, really qualified people and actors and, um, and it's also a great way for me to reconnect with my own country I mean it's not just a, a financial choice it's just that, that I really want to reconnect with uh, yeah with the language and, 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 and the culture and the stories down there how does a writer gain confidence in their voice? I guess the best way to get, uh, gain confidence in your own voice is to practice. Um, practice, explore, um, make sure that it feels right. Um, sometimes your voice incorpor incorporates things from other writers and that's okay because we all, we're, all, we're all influenced. You know, like you'll say, like, you know, I want to be more of a, of a Hemingway sort of writer. It doesn't mean that you're going to be like Hemingway. It's just that there's a certain uh, musicality to it. Or I, don't know. Um, I think with time and practice, eventually, and by trying to enjoy the process, your voice comes out. It's not one of those things that you can force. You can't, you can't fake it. Because sooner or later, I mean, you'll get exhausted. It just feels right. It feels like something you would say. It feels like this is how I express myself. There's a little bit of self-consciousness in it, but also you want to surprise yourself. You don't want to get, get stuck in one idea of what your voice is. Do you think it's easier to write in a fictional name, like a nom de plume, just because you can then express yourself more without the worry of judgment? Interesting. I've never done it. Um, Maybe I should. I, I've thought about it. I, I actually admire uh, writers, musicians who um, preserve their identity. I know um, in some cases we know who they are. With uh, Elena Ferrante, for example, the Italian writer who now has an, there's an HBO show and, and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal actually adapted another of her novels. I'm saying her, but we don't even know if it's a woman. Uh, with Elena Ferrante, we don't even know if it's one person, several people, if it's a man, there are many theories about that. I think it's fun. Um, but um, it's very interesting how that, whoever did that, whoever writes those novels, it goes, it's counterintuitive to our idea of ego and recognition and success, right? And it's like, wow, you took the time to write all that brilliantly and you don't want any credit for it because you have a fake name. I don't know, maybe that's the way to go. Um, same thing with, with bands. I recently saw the residents who have been playing together for 50 years and nobody knows who they are. They wear masks. Um, I should try it. Maybe there's something liberating. And then there was a Spanish female author, correct, that we find out. We found out there were two male writers that were sort of embodying this woman. Maybe I'm getting the country wrong. That rings a bell. I, I, I don't know exactly. I, I know that at some point, I think uh, Woody Allen, who you can't quote anymore, uh, jokingly said that uh, Shakespeare was actually for women. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I do know. I will say this on a more serious note. There's something to be said about collaboration. You know, um, we haven't touched upon this, but I think about it often. I love collaboration. It's really hard to find someone to collaborate with. Uh, Again, it's, it's almost like a romantic relationship. You gotta understand one another and share certain interests and certain dynamics. That's why so often it's um, siblings who do it, you know, like the Cohen brothers or the Duplass brothers or... Um, 
But uh, there's something about collaboration that's just so much fun. And there's immediate reassurance that you're onto something. The only issue it has is that for the industry, they want to label you as a team. Um, so it's, they, they want to market you that way. So it's really hard to collaborate on one project and then break that society. What are the tools a beginning writer has to learn in order to write for film and television? Um, I think that the first thing to do is um, watch, watch a lot of films and TV, um, read a lot of scripts. Um, certain books can help, but mostly I'd say if you read a script, start breaking down scripts. Okay, um, study the format. Study how they use dialogue, how they describe. Study characters and how they, they're presented. It's very important to have, uh, to have strong character presentations. You know, the, the way you introduce them, how is it uh, effective? How do we know that's the protagonist? Um, reading scripts is the best way, for sure. And, and watching a lot, you know, and maybe reading the script and then watching how it was made um, what gets lost, you know, what they remove from the final version of the story. Reading a lot and writing. I mean, that's really the only way to learn how to write is to write and write and write and write and write. And get all the bad scripts out of the way first. We all have those bad scripts. Um, and after a while, they get better. Um, and by, by studying other people's writing and asking for feedback, you get better. You've mentioned that you love Paul Thomas Anderson. When you look at his scripts and then you watch the films, what stands out to you? Um, P.T. Anderson is a freak of nature. I, I adore him. I, um, I love him deeply. I, I recently saw his last movie and I, he was there to introduce it. Um, such a pleasure to hear him talk. He's so articulate and so, you know, real. Um, I think both P.T. Anderson and Tarantino, who many people have, uh, you know, they compare in many ways. First of all, because they're both originally from L.A., which is a rarity in itself. It's weird. Um, they have an authority to speak about the city because they, they were born here. But um, they're both amazing writers, and this doesn't get said enough. I feel like people talk about them as directors, and they're amazing directors, some of my favorite. But they're also incredible screenwriters. Tarantino is an amazing screenwriter. He has a sense of timing and he's become so much more sophisticated with time. Uh, P.T. Anderson, I think what I admire is um, there's an energy to what he does. Um, it's not even a quality of the story itself. His characters have this sense of urgency. No matter the, if you watch his movies, they're always like pulsating. Take um, There Will Be Blood, um, Daniel Lee-Lewis, or, or, or Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love, or even Magnolia, or in this last one. Characters, his characters almost run. They can't keep still. They have to get their, they have an anxiety. And I feel like that's the most distinctive thing. But also, I mean, he never makes the same movie twice. All his movies are so different in genre and tone and aesthetic. And uh, he shoots, shoots with different cameras and... Um, textures and colors he's just it's one of those guys who's, who's um, he emanates you know cinema just he's I don't even try to imitate him he's just in a whole different league
That's what I was wondering when your students ask you, you know, I want to become the next and then fill in the blank. Do you have advice for them where don't actually try to emulate that style? I, I would never tell them what, what to do. I, my advice probably be try to be yourself. I mean, um, or sure, why not? Try to be the next B.T. Anderson. The odds are you're going to be the next you. Um, there's only one P.T. Anderson and, and we should be grateful he exists. But I mean, this, I can say the same thing about Lady Gaga, you know, what I'm saying is it's great to have role models. We all do. But at the end of the day, you're not going to be them. You're going to be you. Um, I don't try to make all the things I, I love, you know, I mean, there are movies I love and I could never write them. It's weird. I mean, when, it's, when you get started and when you uh, probably go to film school or something like that, um, you, maybe you confuse your taste with who, what you produce. But sooner or later you realize that you can love certain kind of movies that you will never make. Or TV shows, you know. I can watch sitcoms. I'll never, I never write sitcoms. It's not natural to me, but I, I'm happy they exist. I have a Maya Angelou quote here, and it is, you can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. <laughs> oh, creativity is, an, yeah, another of those concepts. I, I, I know what it is, but I, know, I can't describe it. I mean, I know that you can stimulate it. Um, you know, it's, it's, we don't necessarily control what, what, um, what stirs creativity. I mean, I know that, um, I do know that when I'm not feeling creative, certain influences will help me get there. Um, when I watched the latest P.T. Anderson movie in, in a theater, I was exhilarated. I'm like, I need to make, go make something now. Um, <clears throat> The same thing, some paintings can do that. You know, sometimes going to a museum can stimulate you, going to concerts or even listening to some music at, alone and, and meeting certain friends, you know, sharing experiences. Anything can stimulate uh, creativity. Sometimes, you know, maybe even um, spiritual, religious practices, going out for a hike. Uh, motion usually helps. I feel like when I'm too static, you know, or lazy, the odds are I won't feel creative, but you know, maybe you work out, maybe you um, take a long shower, maybe you read, maybe you, I don't know, go out for a, getting out of the house. <laughs> I, I, I mean this for writers who usually work from home or their office, you know, getting a space to, a different space to work out, cha you know, change the location. So I, I agree with the quote.